Okay, so we are going to continue on in our journey in the colon. Um, yesterday we talked about diarrhea, so now we're going to talk about its opposite, um, constipation. So constipation can occur because of motility disorders, but more commonly in practice, and what is tested is constipation secondary to medications. Um, Sometimes patients have a sudden onset of symptoms of constipation, and that implies more of an obstruction and requires an evaluation, uh, especially if it's a patient near the age of 50 or over the age of 50. Um, you would want to recommend a diagnostic test. So that is something they like to test on the boards is if it's new onset constipation, someone who's over the age of 50, the one of the first, you would do diagnostic evaluation. You would not just treat with laxatives and fiber. Uh, one of the complications of constipation is actual fecal impaction, and some patients can actually get an overflow diarrhea from the fecal impaction. So the patients may be complaining of diarrhea, but they truly have an overflow diarrhea from a true fecal impaction. Treatment of constipation includes first-line therapies of simple things of dietary changes, dietary fiber, water, exercise. Then we may use osmotic laxatives such as polyethylene glycol or lubiprostone. We uh, see a lot of opioid-induced constipation. So there are new drugs on the market to treat that, uh, considering use of methylnaltrexone. Uh, and one of the newer medications for treatment of constipation is linactylide. And it has been on the market for a few years, so something that could be tested. So we'll start with a question. An 85-year-old nursing home patient who has dementia has been active enough to ambulate and go to the dining room. She likes watching Wheel of Fortune every evening. She, she does have a long history of constipation, which has been treated with stool softeners. Today, the patient's daughter calls you. The patient has a new onset of diarrhea. The patient is incontinent of small volume, watery stools. The patient is expressing discomfort, although it is difficult to determine where the discomfort is. The nurse at the nursing home thinks that maybe some of the other residents have been suffering from viral syndromes lately. What is the most likely diagnosis? A, Shigella, B, fecal impaction, C, Giardia, or D, E. coli 0157H7? Okay, so majority of you guys answered B, fecal impaction. Most likely diagnosis is this overflow diarrhea secondary to fecal impaction. So then we go to the other condition that many of us see in clinical practice and certain things that they can test us on the boards is for irritable bowel syndrome. The pathophysiology uh, usually is increased motor activity to various stimuli, including meals, stress, balloon distension. A lot of the patient characteristics of this may be in the, the question stem is a lot of the patients don't come for medical care in the Western world, IBS is more female predominant. In Asia, uh, it's more commonly seen in men. Uh, there is an increased perception of stress, and there may be in the history stem a possible history of abuse as a child. Clinical characteristics, and this is based on the Rome criteria, uh, it 
can include any one of these, doesn't have to include all of them. Abdominal pain relieved by defecation, altered stool frequency. Uh, the patients may have alternating constipation with diarrhea, altered stool form, hard, hard or loose stools uh, alternating with watery stools. Altered stool passage, meaning the patients may be complaining of straining, urgency, incomplete evacuation, abdominal distension. Uh, usually they do not have any bleeding. Uh, they do not have weight loss, uh, no nocturnal symptoms, and the symptoms are persisting for more than three months. So a question. 24-year-old male, currently in his sixth year of college, describes intermittent diarrhea for three years. He reports the loose stools can alternate with constipation. He's never had nocturnal stools and suffers with mild abdominal cramps. Past medical history is negative. Uh, review of systems is negative for weight loss, fever, joint pains, or skin rashes. Social history, he drinks beer on the weekends. He does drink two glasses of milk every day, and he is chewing sugar-free gum constantly. He denies any recent travel. You recommend at this point, A, a 72-hour fecal fat collection, B, a colonoscopy, C, a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, D, a trial of a lactose-free, sorbitol-free diet. Okay. So majority of the uh, audience answered D, trial of lactose-free, sorbitol-free diet. So that is correct. This is a patient who likely has irritable bowel syndrome. There are no red flags to prompt an aggressive workup. Um, and lactose and sorbitol, as we talked about yesterday, are osmotic-type uh, substances that can cause diarrhea. So by having the patient reduce them, uh, that would be one of the first treatments. So for the boards, they really like to test when do you need to consider doing invasive or more aggressive testing in a patient with irritable bowel syndrome. So this is where they're really looking in, honing in on these alarm signs that we've talked about. So in irritable bowel syndrome, they want us to try to avoid unneeded tests. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. At times, you may do stool tests if there's a history of travel. You want to rule out lactose intolerance, sorbitol use, something dietary. Uh, this is where, for the boards, they're trying to test when do you do an invasive test, like a sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy, and it would be when you have these red flag signs of bleeding, weight loss, anemia, you also want to keep celiac, mind, celiac disease in the back of your mind as part of the differential in anyone who has irritable bowel syndrome. So possible other exam topics, uh, they may ask about first-line treatment would be fiber. You can use an antispasmodic such as dicyclamine, tricyclic for refractory symptoms. Uh, they would like to, they'll probably put a something in the question stem about sexual abuse history or child abuse. Uh, and then a diagnosis in a patient with symptoms of bloating, alternating diarrhea, and constipation. So you really look at the question stem and looking at what's in the history. Okay. IBS is still one of the most common causes of chronic diarrhea, but just as re repetition, if there is weight loss, increased inflammatory markers, anemia, you need to think of other things such as inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease. If the symptoms are occurring of late onset, so in your 40s, 50s, 60s, that's when you would do uh, an invasive test as the first 
uh, or next management is such as a colonoscopy. So you're looking for something else. So if it's a young patient presenting with these symptoms, you would think more uh, without any red flag signs, you would think irritable bowel. But if it's an older patient of new onset symptoms, you're going to do diagnostic testing. Microscopic colitis. Uh, microscopic colitis is a chronic watery diarrhea. Usually it's more common in middle-aged women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. It is associated with other autoimmune diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, thyroid disease. It is also associated with, with use of NSAIDs. Uh, you need to know how we make that diagnosis is a colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy with biopsy. So the colonoscopy will show normal colonic mucosa, but the diagnosis is made on biopsy. And we had a question, one of the AR questions yesterday was a woman in her 50s who was having loose watery stools and the question was what would be the next step? It would have been a colonoscopy for two reasons, for screening purposes and to make this diagnosis of microscopic colitis. Uh, there are many treatment options, um, but and um, they would probably not ask you this, is that it does not involve, evolve into ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So there can be an association, but it will usually will not ev evolve into that. So microscopic colitis is a separate inflammatory diarrhea. So this is a biopsy picture showing uh, microscopic colitis where you have increased lymphocytes and uh, in the crypts or next to the crypts. Okay. So now we're going to switch gears. Uh, on the boards, they really like to test about colon polyps. Uh, they're really testing on surveillance, how often you do the surveillance, and then colon cancer screening. So we're going to spend the next few minutes going through that. So background, most colon cancers do arise from colonic or tubular adenomas. The risk of cancer is higher when polyps are greater than two centimeters in size, when they are of what we call a sessile base, and I'll show you a picture of that. If a patient has a history of multiple polyps, they're at higher risk, and if the pathology shows, a, shows villous features. 25% of the American population over the age of 50 has polyps. Hyperplastic polyps are benign polyps, so they have no malignant potential, Tubular adenomas or sessile serrated adenomas do have malignant potential. The treatment of colon polyps are removal and close surveillance. Okay, so that's normal mucosa. The second picture is what we call a uh, sessile polyp. This is a larger sessile polyp, and then this is a cancer. So if this polyp, this polyp was not removed and involved, evolved into this, to this. So this is the whole purpose of colon cancer screening. So we have our next question. A 55-year-old male is in for an executive health check. He has no specific complaints, and he's taking no medications. He has no family history of colon cancer. Um, as a part of his physical that day, you recommend a screening colonoscopy. He has a screening colonoscopy, and on this exam, a pedunculated 5-millimeter polyp is found in the ascending colon and removed with snare technique. The pathology of the polyp shows a tubular adenoma. The patient now asks you when he should have a follow-up colonoscopy. Uh, which of the following recommendations do you give regarding follow-up colonoscopy? A, he should have a repeat colonoscopy in one year, B, in five years, 
C, in 10 years, or D, no follow-up is needed? Okay, so majority of you guys answered B, five years, and that is correct. So this slide is really important to know. You really need to know the appropriate intervals for colonoscopy after finding a, after having your first screening exam. So this is what the boards really likes to test on. So if there's no polyps, uh, or if you have uh, hyperplastic polyps, and there's no family history, this is assuming no family history in any of this for the screening intervals, that your follow-up can be in 10 years. If you have one to two adenomas, they're considered small if they're less than five millimeters, so in your question stem, they would say the size, then the follow-up would be in five years. If you have three to 10 adenomas less than five millimeters, or if you have one tubular adenoma that's greater than a centimeter, the surveillance follow-up would be three years. If you have 10 or greater adenomas, then you would do a repeat colonoscopy in less than three years. So you say one to three years. Um, polyps that are removed in a piecemeal fashion. So meaning we didn't get it out in one piece. We got the whole thing out, but we moved, removed it in two or three pieces. They require repeat colonoscopy in two to six months. So that is another one that they like to test on. So if it said piecemeal resection, surveillance colonoscopy again in two to six months to make sure you remove the entire polyp. So please really mark this slide because you need to know the surveillance guidelines for this. Um, another way of looking at it is how, when do you say repeat colonoscopy in three years if three to ten adenomas are found measuring less than five millimeters, any adenoma greater than a centimeter, any adenoma with villus features, um, any adenoma with high-grade dysplasia. Another way, another chart, just re repetition. No polyps, 10 years. Small hyperplastic polyps in the rectum or sigmoid, 10 years. One to two small adenomas, surveillance in five years. Three to 10 adenomas, surveillance in three years. Greater than 10 adenomas, surveillance in under three years. Uh, any adenoma measuring greater than a centimeter, recommended surveillance is three years. Any adenoma with villus features, such as villus or tubulovillus pathology, uh, or high-grade dysplasia surveillance in three years. So this is one they really like to use and test for the boards. Now, there is a new type of classification of a type of tubular adenoma called a sessile serrated polyp. Something they could ask on the boards are surveillances if you have a sessile serrated adenoma, under a centimeter with no dysplasia, the surveillance would be in five years. If you have a sessile serrated adenoma greater than a centimeter, it would be surveillance in three years. A sessile serrated polyp with dysplasia of any size recommended surveillance in three years. And then if there's a serrated polyposis syndrome, then surveillance in one year. And the traditional serrated adenoma, that's a diagnosis based on pathology. So really you just wanna know these, if you remember these two slides where the, for the surveillance, when you do surveillance, um, that may be something that could come up on the boards. So then we have familial adenomatosis polyposis syndrome or FAP where there is a gene mutation in the APC gene. It is an autosomal dominant uh, syndrome. 
And in this, patients will have hundreds of adenomas. And actually, you start screening someone in their teens if, the, if there is a family history of this. You do do a scope, and then usually these patients end up getting a total proctocolectomy in their late teens, early 20s to decrease their risk of colon cancer. Now, there's a variant of FAP syndrome that they could test on called Gardner syndrome, and essentially it's FAP plus bony lesions. So the bony lesions include either osteomas or soft tissue tumors. So this is a picture of someone who has FAP. So key things to FAP, suspect it based on family history. Uh, you make the diagnosis, you offer colectomy. Later, you, after the patient's had colectomy, one thing they could test on is, does the patient need an uh, GI up, need upper GI evaluation with endoscopy to screen for duodenal polyps? So yesterday we talked about gastric polyps. Most gastric polyps are not a big deal. Duodenal polyps are a big deal, especially in FAP. So FAP patients who've undergone a total proctocolectomy will need surveillance of their upper GI tract for dysplasia. And you want to make sure you screen all family members, and that's by checking the gene mutation. The other polyposis syndrome that is uh, highly tested on the boards is Peutz-Jäger syndrome. Uh, patients will have hamartomatous polyps in the GI tract. They will have pigmentation uh, on their oral mucosa or on their lips. These polyps can bleed or obstruct. So clinical history could be that a patient presents with small bowel obstruction from an intussusception, and then uh, they could ask what is the possibility, and they're saying the patient has perioral skin pigmented lesions. Uh, we would need to think about Peutz-Jäger syndrome. Another question they could ask is these patients do need to be screened for other malignancies as they are at higher risk for developing pancreas cancer, other upper GI tract cancers. And so they would ask, do they need to be screened for other malignancies? They're probably not going to ask on your boards the specific malignancies, but you would need to be screened for other malignancies. Then there is hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, HNPCC or Lynch syndrome. So the thing they like to figure out is, number one, they may test on, does this, is this patient at higher risk for HNPCC based on the family history? So family history is colon cancer in three first-degree relatives over two generations and one with a diagnosis of colon cancer under the age of 50. So it's the three, two, one rule. So three first-degree relatives over two generations and one under the age of 50. More commonly, they tend to have right-sided colon cancers. They are also at higher risk for to develop other malignancies, including endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, renal cancer, urethral cancer, gastric, pancreas, and biliary tree cancer. Usually, if this is running in families, we start recommending screening early, such as at the age of 25. Okay. Question, a 30-year-old man comes to your office to establish health care. He has no specific complaints and states he feels well and pretty healthy. He does state that his father was diagnosed with colon cancer at the age of 45. His father was part of a family with five siblings, and none of them have had colon cancer. Likewise, neither of the father's parents or his grandparents have had colon cancer. The patient asks if he would be at increased risk for colon cancer, and is there any screening test that would be appropriate? 
Which of the following do you recommend? A, colonoscopy at age 35. B, colonoscopy at age 45. C, colonoscopy at age 50. Or D, a CT colonography or virtual colonoscopy now. Okay, so majority of the audience said colonoscopy at age 35. That is correct. So you want this patient, the patient's father had a sporadic colon cancer. We are not concerned about HNPCC because we went through the uh, three, two generations. No one else had uh, colon cancer. So you would recommend screen. This patient is at higher risk since his father had colon cancer under the age of 50, and you would recommend to have him screen 10 years before his father's diagnosis. So colon cancer risk factors, it's higher risk after the age of 50, history of tubular adenomas. If a first degree relative has a colon cancer, you are at higher risk. However, it's if you have a colon cancer under the age of 60. Familial polyposis syndromes put you at higher risk for developing colon cancer. We talked about FAP, Gardner's, Putz-Jaeger's. Yesterday, we talked about the risk of colon cancer with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis. Um, and then patients who have a high-fat, low-fiber diet are also considered uh, to be at higher risk for developing colon cancer. Okay. It's a picture of a very large colon cancer. Uh, on the boards, they may show you a picture of a barium enema, and this is what they consider the classic apple core lesion. So if you see this, this is colon cancer. The patient would undergo a colonoscopy to get tissue diagnosis. So the apple core lesion. So what are our options for colon cancer screening? Uh, options include fecal occult testing every year, a sigmoidoscopy every four to five years, uh, double contrast barium enema every five years, colonoscopy every 10 years. This is if you have a normal exam. Virtual colonoscopy is an option, however, uh, it still requires the prep and it's still not uh, considered as standard for a lot of the payers. So for board purposes, it is an option. Um, and then withdrawal times are more for just, as you know, there's more on quality of how we do procedures and how we practice different things in medicine. So then they're also looking at withdrawal times. And you may be seeing that on procedure reports. The ColoGuard stool test that is available as one of the screening tools. It is available and very useful for clinical practice. But right now for boards, it's not on as one of the recommended screening uh, screening modalities. So uh, you can't use that for board purposes. So that's why I didn't mention it. But in clinical practice, you can use it. I know the reps are all coming to your offices and promoting it, and it's a good test. But for board purposes, uh, you probably won't see that on there. You may see fit testing, um, which is uh, much better than the standard fecal occult blood testing. That could be on the boards, but usually ColoGuard won't be on the boards yet. So next question. A 60-year-old patient comes in for a general checkup. She has no specific complaints. Past medical history is negative. She is on no medications. She has mild, untreated hyperlipidemia. 
She's not taking any anti-inflammatory medications. Her family history is negative for GI malignancies. On review system, she denies any change in bowel habits. As part of her routine check, you recommend a screening colonoscopy, but she declines this exam. She's heard from her friends that it's painful, the prep is so difficult, so she declines to do it. But she does agree to do three stools for occult blood. She mails these back to you, and one of the three stools is positive for blood. You now recommend which of the following? A, repeat three more stools for occult blood, because she doesn't want to do the prep. You encourage her to get a colonoscopy. C, you recommend a sigmoidoscopy. D, no further treatment, but simply just recheck her next year. Okay, so majority of you answered, encourage her to get a colonoscopy. So that is correct. So one of her stools is positive for fecal occult blood. We do need to have her further evaluated. So it is important to remember um, in colon cancer screening, only if you have a fecal occult blood test that is positive, 10% of the time there could be a cancer, 30% of the time there could be a polyp. Um, so ideally, if you have a positive fecal occult test, you would recommend for the patient to undergo colonoscopy. You do have to remember there are limitations to that test. The test is negative in more than half of, half of uh, cancer-proven patients. So it's usually not our first-line uh, test that we recommend. However, it is still part of the guidelines, so important to know the background. Um, colon cancer, other risk factors. So if you have a positive family history, meaning under the age of 60, you would recommend screening. Single, having a single first-degree family member doubles the risk of developing colon cancer from 3 to 6% over your lifetime. And this last statement should state, uh, just like in the AR question that we had, you should start screening for colon cancer 10 years before the person was diagnosed. So in our example, we had the father who had colon cancer age 45, so the patient should be screened at age 35. So... Remember that, and that's a good one they like to test on the boards is when you would start screening. It is also important to remember CEA is not a screening test. It is used more for surveillance after someone has the diagnosis of colon cancer. So if this is uh, listed as one of the options for this is how you can screen for colon cancer, that is one of your distractor uh, answers. Uh, we do know just a quick review of colon cancer Staging, we have uh, TNM staging one, two, three, four, four being with distant Mets. Uh, TNM one, or as we also know it as Duke's A classification, cancer is confined to the mucosa. Five year survival is about 93%. Usually they need no further treatment after a resection and they just require surveillance colonoscopy. TNM two, or Duke's B, Five-year survival is between 72 to 85%. Patients may need chemotherapy if locally advanced. Uh, TNM3, cancer extends into the lymph nodes, and they usually do get uh, post-operative chemotherapy. And then with distant METs, uh, it depends on what their protocol they're on. Now, for rectal cancer, patients may, have, may get radiation therapy uh, as neoadjuvant therapy. It does reduce local recurrence, so they usually do give it before surgery. If rectal cancer is metastatic, they are using different 
uh, chemo regimens. Something they could test on is that aspirin may reduce the risk uh, of death after diagnosis of a malignancy. So it would be still prudent to continue the aspirin. Another thing they really like to test on the board, so we're going to go through this, is indications for colonoscopy. So if a patient has occult bleeding, so that's where their fecal occult testing is positive, indication for colonoscopy, iron deficiency anemia, no matter what the age would be an indication, gross lower GI bleeding, uh, in, but however, not all rectal bleeding, especially right red blood in a young patient, so they'll put something in the question stem. An abnormal barium enema, as we saw with the apple core lesion. If a patient has a history of an adenomatous polyp in the past or on current sigmoidoscopy, they would need a full colonoscopy. If they have a, their own personal history of colorectal cancer or a family history of colon cancer. Indications continued are FAP, HNPCC. If you are suspicious for someone who has inflammatory bowel disease based on their history, family history, laboratory parameters, colonoscopies indicated. In addition, colonoscopies indicated to check for what we call mucosal healing. And then as we talked about yesterday for colon cancer surveillance, because after you've had ulcerative colitis for 20 years, your risk of developing colon cancer does go up. Now, one of the other questions they could ask is, say a patient presents with bacteremia with strep bovis, and they may ask, what are one of the recommendations that you would make for this patient to have is you would have them eventually undergo colonoscopy to evaluate for colon cancer because strep bovis septicemia is associated with colon cancer. Clostridium septicum also, if that is, uh, if the patient has clostridium septicum, you would also screen and recommend a colonoscopy. In ischemic colitis, that is an indication for colonoscopy. We're going to go over ischemic colitis uh, later this morning. Um, another indication for colonoscopy is decompression. So if someone has a colonic pseudoobstruction where their colon is dilated up to 11 centimeters to keep them from having surgery, colonoscopy could be indicated to decompress them. The other indication for colonoscopy is after an acute attack of diverticulitis, once the diverticulitis has been treated and cooled down, you, do, you should recommend a colonoscopy four to eight weeks after that to make sure that truly the patient didn't have a colonic mass as a cause of their symptoms. So I'll just go back. Remember, these two slides are very important because they really like to test on indications for colonoscopy. So like we talked about yesterday, some of the indications for endoscopy, the indications for colonoscopy. Okay. Next question. A 72-year-old female who has no prior GI history presents to the emergency room with one day of left lower quadrant pain. She states it's been very constant, but not so severe. She has no associated diarrhea or rectal bleeding. She does feel somewhat distended and bloated. Overnight, she reports that she had a fever of 101. Um, her past medical history is significant for hyperlipidemia. She's never had any surgery. Her family history is negative for any GI uh, diseases, and she's never had a screening colonoscopy. Her physical exam shows her abdomen is slightly distended, and there is tenderness in the left lower quadrant. Labs uh, are otherwise normal, except she does have a white blood cell count of 17, and her hemoglobin is 15. At this point, you recommend A, 
a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, B, a colonoscopy, C, a barium enema, or D, a mesenteric angiogram. Okay, so majority of you answered CT of the abdomen and pelvis. So this patient, we are concerned about diverticulitis, an acute form, her white count's elevated, and her physical exam is consistent. So a CT would help confirm the diagnosis, and also a CT would help us figure out, does she have any complication from the diverticulitis, such as an abscess? The other tests would not be as helpful and a colonoscopy actually is very dangerous and can increase the risk of a perforation in the acute setting of diverticulitis. So let's talk a little bit about acute diverticulitis, acute onset of left lower quadrant pain, tenderness. Sometimes it can present with a mass if the patient has a large abscess. Uh, patients will report fevers. They will have an increased white blood cell count. They may be complaining of obstipation. One of the big features in their history is usually they don't have any rectal bleeding. A CT scan will show the diverticulitis inflammation could show an abscess. You want to avoid endoscopic evaluation during the acute uh, attack. Treatments are usually either with fluoroquinolones with metronidazole or second or third generation cephalosporin. Important to remember some of the complications of acute diverticulitis, which include abscess, peritonitis, fistula, or obstruction. And then it's also important to know when do you call in a surgeon for the acute tack of diverticulitis. And so if they have one of the complications, we would be calling in our surgical colleagues. Diverticular bleeding, on the other hand, is usually painless passage of maroon-colored stools. The diagnosis is made by colonoscopy. Uh, you can use a tagged RBC scan or angiography if they're bleeding fast enough. Uh, it will, that would just show the site of the blood vessel feeding into the diverticula that is bleeding but may not make the exact diagnosis. Treatment is usually supportive. Uh, you can do colonoscopy and you can look if you do, if a patient presents acutely, you rapidly purge them and you can do a colonoscopy and try to endoscopically find the actual diverticulum that's bleeding and you can inject and treat that vessel. But for board purposes, important to remember, diagnosis is made by colonoscopy, treatment is supportive. And remember, it's different than diverticulitis. Itis is the inflammation infection, losis is the bleeding. So this is a picture of a diverticular disease. Now, Meckel's diverticulum, they like to test on this, is one of the most frequent congenital GI anomalies. It is the cause of half of GI bleeds in children. It can present with obstruction or intussusception. It is rarely seen on a barium enema and really never seen on an upper GI series. The diagnosis is made by a technetium scan. And so uh, this is sort of, this would be your diagnosis or the workup that you would consider in a patient who presented possibly with a GI bleed, possible partial obstruction. You work them up, you don't find anything in their colon and they're still having intermittent bleeding then this is when you would consider doing a Meckel scan. Okay, so we're going to switch gears now and start talking about GI bleeding. So 
for probably the next half hour, we're going to cover upper GI bleeding, lower GI bleeding, obscure GI bleeding, and then GI ischemia. Okay, so first question. Very common scenario. A 72-year-old man is evaluated in the ED for a two-week history of gnawing epigastric pain, followed by one recent episode of coffee ground emesis, which occurred six hours prior to presentation. He has a history of a prosthetic mitral valve replacement and, and chronic AFib. He also had a TIA one year ago. He has no history of liver disease. His current medications include warfarin and metoprolol. So you've started on an IV PPI in the ED. On physical exam, by the time you come to see him, his blood pressure is 120 over 85. His heart rate is 90. Respiratory rate is 16. Abdomen is tender to palpation the epigastrium, and there's no stigmata of liver disease. On his labs, his hemoglobin is 12.5, INR is 2.3, BUN is 46, and his creatinine is 1.0. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? A, fresh frozen plasma, B, IV vitamin K, C, PO vitamin K, or D, upper endoscopy? Okay, so majority answered upper endoscopy. A few of you answered uh, fresh frozen plasma. So upper endoscopy would be indicated in this patient. Um, his INR is 2.5. Uh, he usually, to, for endoscopy, we don't always have to lower the INR. Um, and so for board, you know, where you work and depending on what hospitals you work on, your GI hospital, a consult team may give you guys other recommendations, but for purposes of boards, you don't always have to reverse the INR, especially this patient has a valve, so you can go straight to upper endoscopy because you want to treat the underlying lesion endoscopically. So remember types of GI bleeding, so depending on what they're presenting with will help you locate their source of bleeding. So hematemesis usually suggests a source proximal to the ligament of trite, so more upper. Melana also uh, usu usually is a lesion proximal to the ligament of trites. However, it could be a small bowel or right-sided colonic lesion. Hematochesia usually suggests a colonic source of bleeding. However, if the patient is having a very rapid upper GI bleed, it can also present as hematochesia. Okay. So the one thing they really like to test on the boards are the importance of looking at vital signs and how we resuscitate. So if a patient who's presenting with a GI bleed has a resting tachycardia, their volume status is they already have some mild to moderate hypovolemia. If they have orthostatic hypotension, they've already had a blood loss of approximately 15%. And if they have supine hypotension, their blood loss is of greater than 40%. So really important to remember to resuscitate. And for boards, they really like to ask about resuscitation. So remember, resuscitation is the most important thing to do for an acute GI bleed. Uh, basics, first step is to, uh, to get appropriate access. So either two large bore peripheral IVs or a central line. The next step is to expand the patient's intravascular volume with both crystalloid and, if needed, packed red blood cells. 
You want to transfuse when the hemoglobin is less than seven. The goal should be to keep the hemoglobin between seven and eight. And if a patient has significant coronary artery disease, you would keep the hemoglobin between nine and 10. So for board purposes, they'll ask, oh, if the patient presents with a hemoglobin of 6.1, you're going to resuscitate with blood. If the patient presents with a hemoglobin of probably nine and their baseline was 12, you're going to resuscitate with IV fluids. So really, they really like to ask about resuscitation. So a 40-year-old woman presents to the emergency room after passing a dark tarry stool this morning. This was followed by passage of dark red blood. She experienced some lightheadedness but did not pass out, and her family then brought her to the emergency department promptly. This woman is otherwise healthy except for arthritis pain for which she takes ibuprofen on a daily basis. Her only other medication is 81 milligrams of aspirin, which she takes because of a family history of coronary artery disease. She's never been told that she has any heart problems. While in the emergency room, IV fluids are started and the patient has a stable blood pressure and heart rate. An NG tube is passed and the lavage of the stomach is negative for any blood. At this point, which of the following diagnostic studies do you recommend? A, an EGD, B, a tagged RBC bleeding scan, C, a colonoscopy, or D, a video capsule. All right, so majority of you guys answered A, EGD. So the teaching point in this uh, audience response question is that NG tube is helpful, but it's not always definite. So the NG tube will only tell you if there was blood in the stomach. If the patient's bleeding from a duodenal source, the NG tube uh, can be negative. Plus, in a patient who may have had a peptic ulcer bleed, they bled and the bleeding could have stopped. So when you put the NG tube down, uh, it can still be negative. If it's positive, it helps. If it's negative, it could still be an uh, upper GI bleed. So you would first still do an endoscopy or an EGD in this patient. Okay. So in this patient, we're going to continue. The patient undergoes an endoscopy and a duodenal ulcer with a spurting vessel is detected. Endoscopic therapy is done with injection and thermal therapy. How long should this patient remain on PPI therapy? What, is, what do you guys think? How long do we think the patient should remain on PPI therapy? Yell it out because there's no answers. To, 72 hours. Anyone else have a different answer? Right now the patient's on IV. So in this question, IV. 72 hours. Okay. So treatment of bleeding peptic ulcer disease, the current role for IV PPI, you use it for 72 hours in any patient who's undergone endoscopic therapy, such as injection and thermal therapy. You can start oral PPI after the endoscopy unless there's a reason to keep this patient NPO. The question is role of high-dose PPI. They can't really test you on the board. So for the boards, you need to know current role for IV PPI in someone who had a spurting vessel would be for 72 hours. So the goals of endoscopy and upper GI bleeding is, number one, to de determine the cause of bleeding, uh, treat the cause of bleeding, and then really do your risk assessment for re-bleeding. 
Um, you want to be able to administer endoscopic therapy. We have different techniques we can use with injection therapy, thermal therapy, and then mechanical therapy using hemoclips or uh, banding. Now, this is one thing they really like to test on about these endoscopic uh, lesions and then their rate or risk of re-bleeding. So if a patient has an arterial spurt, their risk of re-bleeding is 95%. So that's why we aggressively monitor them, keep watching them in the ICU. If a patient has an oozing lesion, uh, a visible oozing lesion like this, their risk of re-bleeding is 55%. If a patient has a visible vessel that's not actively bleeding, still their risk of re-bleeding from this is 50%. If the patient has an adherent clot, the risk of rebleeding is between 30 to 35%. If they just have a red spot, the risk of rebleeding is 7 to 10%. And if they have a clean base ulcer like this, the risk of bleeding is about 5%. So really doing the risk assessment will tell us how long we have to keep the patient in the hospital on IV therapy. So Spurting vessel high, visible vessel 50%, adherent clot 30%, flat red spot is about 7 to 10%, and a superficial ulcer is 5%. So uh, what we do is by doing the EGD, it would allow you, if it's a clean-based ulcer, there's a very low risk of re-bleeding, so you can allow this patient for early discharge. Um, we do have, when we are not able to stop the bleeding, or let's say a patient re-bleeds from an arterial spurt, you re-scope them, you can't get them better, then that's an indication for surgery. So another thing they like to test on boards is if it's a clean-based ulcer, can you give go for early discharge? The answer is yes, because the risk of re-bleeding is uh, approximately 5%. If a patient has an upper GI bleed that is failing endoscopic therapy or interventional radiology therapy, then that is an indication for surgery. Okay. Some other causes of upper GI bleeding include Mallory Weiss tear, esophageal varices or gastric varices. We're going to go through varices in the liver section. Um, very rare cause, but it can occur is an aor aortoenteric fistula Usually this occurs in patients who've had a history of an abdominal aortic aneurysm repair and they're presenting with melana and you think it's just a mild, you know, probably a peptic ulcer and then they peptic ulcer bleed and then they have severe hemorrhage. And another uh, cause of GI bleeding is a dulafoid lesion. Okay. Um, remember when you do blood transfusions and variceal bleeds, Usually the cause of the variceal bleed is increased portal hypertension. If you over give transfusions, it can lead to increase in portal pressures, which can lead to increased bleeding. So for guidelines, they suggest to transfuse to hemodynamic stability in a hemoglobin of around eight in variceal bleeding. So some take home points for upper GI bleeding. Early aggressive resuscitation is very important. So on the boards, they really like to test is patient presents with GI bleeding, what would be your next step? So always resuscitation is the step, if it's an option before the endoscopy, resuscitation is usually the answer. You wanna make sure you have adequate peripheral access and admission to the appropriate level of care. So floor versus ICU. 
airway protection. So if a patient is having active hematemesis and they're hemodynamically unstable, you do want to get them resuscitated and intubated for airway protection from aspiration pneumonia. You would start an IV PPI drip. Uh, really no need to correct a mild coagulopathy. So if your INR is less than two point, around 2.5 or less, and you don't have to correct it. NG tube is not necessary in most cases. However, it can be helpful. Timing of endoscopy between 12 to 24 hours in most cases. PPI drip should be continued for 72 hours if endoscopic, is, endoscopic intervention is employed or deployed during uh, treatment or if a high-risk lesion is seen. And then for uh, variceal bleeders, you want to make sure you're giving octreotide and antibiotics. Okay, next question. A 65-year-old man is evaluated in the ED for painless bright red blood per rectum. It started six hours ago. He has no other medical conditions. He takes no medications. Blood pressure is 130 over 78. Heart rate is 96. His abdominal exam is normal. Rectal exam shows no external hemorrhoids, but there's bright red blood in the rectal vault. His hemoglobin is 10.4. Platelets are 380. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's bleeding? A, colon cancer, B, diverticulosis, C, a duodenal ulcer, or D, ischemic colitis? Okay, so majority of you answered B, diverticulosis. So this is a presentation of painless rectal bleeding. Some of the distractors, colon cancer is put in there because he's never had a screening colonoscopy, but usually does not present as sudden onset. Uh, duodenal ulcer can present as bright red blood rectum, but the patient would be extremely unstable hemodynamically. It's a brisk upper GI bleed. Ischemic colitis, the patient would have uh, some pain on exam. So lower GI bleed, the most common cause is diverticulosis, usually presents, as we said, painless rectal bleeding. AVMs, arteriovenous malformations can be an etiology. Colon cancer can be an etiology. A post-polypectomy bleed uh, is a common presentation. Uh, ischemic colitis, however, with ischemic colitis, the patient would always have abdominal pain in the question stem. Uh, if it's a brisk lower, if it's a brisk upper GI bleed, it can present as a lower GI hemorrhage. We talked about a Meckel's diverticulum in a young patient, and then anorectal sources such as hemorrhoids or fissures. So an NG lavage should be considered in cases of hemodynamic compromise to rule out a brisk upper GI source of bleeding. Remember, as we talked about, if it's bloody, it could be that you would go straight to EGD. However, it's bilious, unlikely an upper GI bleed. However, you still can't rule out GI bleeds. So uh, in, a in a patient who presents with a lower GI bleed, having an NG tube can help you because it would help you determine if you need to do an endoscopy. The other reason it could also help you is that if you plan to do a rapid bowel purge prior to colonoscopy, instead of having the patient drink it, you can have them put it through the NG tube. So that's more of something for clinical practice, but also just useful to know for the boards as well. Okay, so why is colonoscopy useful to do in lower GI bleeding? The advantages are that you could potentially localize a lesion and give a potential therapeutic intervention. 
as in this case, this patient had a diverticula that was actively bleeding, and this uh, diverticulum was then injected with um, epinephrine, and then a hemoclip was placed on it. Disadvantages of colonoscopy during an acute GI bleed is usually if the bowel is unprepped, you have poor visualization. There's the risks of sedation, and it's op a little bit more operator-dependent, and you may not be able to find the lesion. So rapid purge urgent colonoscopy can be performed. Usually it's performed within 6 to 12 hours of hospitalization. You give a high volume of the pegylated prep. Uh, you can give anywhere between 4 to 11 liters of purge. Uh, usually it requires the patient to consume a liter every 30 to 45 minutes, which is a lot. So that's why having an NG tube in place can be helpful. You can also consider using metoclopramide. Uh, an IV dose prior to the purge to help with contractility and motility. Management in lower GI bleeding, just like upper GI bleeding, is stabilization, resuscitation. You can consider an NG tube, as we talked about, uh, because it would help you determine if you need an EGD. Uh, if the patient continues to have ongoing lower GI bleeding, you don't think you would be able to do a colonoscopy because... It's going to be very difficult to prep the patient. This is when you may consider doing a tag scan or an angiography. So tag scan, tagged RBC scan is very helpful. However, the rate of bleeding has to be greater than 0.1 ml per minute. And your, where you work has to have it available. So for board purposes, it may say colonoscopy patient was unstable to do. You may send them to tagged RBC scan to determine if it's an upper or lower source and then go to angiography to help uh, do some therapeutic intervention. Uh, advantages are that it can pick up a slow bleed. It may help you select which patients you need to send for angiography. Unfortunately, the localization is not the best. It can kind of give you local, localization based kind of on a quadrant area. And its sensitivity is very variable uh, as it is, there is some operator dependence. And geography is also very useful. Usually you're doing it for bleeding greater, if it's bleeding greater than an ml per minute, it allows for super selective embolization. Usually the SMA is examined first as diverticular bleeds are, most of them are supplied by the SMA. Advantages are you can do something therapeutic. You don't require bowel prep. It's highly specific. Disadvantages are there are re-bleed rates. You can get minor major ischemia and the risk of contrast nephropathy. So we're always weighing the risks and benefits of all of these studies. Okay, next question. A 60-year-old man in the emergency department with his third episode of melanin. He's had a negative workup three years ago when he had his first episode. Currently, he denies any other GI symptoms. He does feel weak. He has a family history that is positive for GI bleeding, but he doesn't really know what the source was. He just says, oh, I have a lot of family members that have had GI bleeding. On review of systems, he does report that he has a lot of nosebleeds. Um, on physical exam, you notice that he has telangiectasias on the lips and his fingertips. On EGD, he's had findings of gastric and duodenal AVMs. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, Putz-Jaeger's syndrome. B, familial polyposis syndrome. C, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasias. 
D, diverticular bleeding, or E, celiac sprue. Okay, so majority of you guys answered hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasias. We talked about this a little bit yesterday um, in a patient who has AVMs and a family history in the nosebleeds. So characteristic findings on physical exam of the telangiectasias. The history will include nosebleeds and GI bleed. The history may also include a family history of GI bleed. And then endoscopically, it would be reported that the patient had multiple AVMs. Usually you see it more in the upper GI tract compared to the lower GI tract. So AVMs are also called angiodysplasias or vascular ectasias. It can be the cause of acute or occult bleeding. It's more common in elderly patients. Um, and if these are found in the colon, we can still do endoscopic therapy. Previously, there was a thought that you couldn't do endoscopic therapy of these lesions in the colon because you increase the risk of perforation. But with experience, um, we find that it's actually very appropriate. So this is a picture of an AVM in the colon, and it looks like this. What We, class, uh, we characterize it as a fern-like lesion because it has all these little branches. And the way you do endoscopic therapy to it is you can inject it and then you can do thermal therapy. Okay, so take-home points for acute lower GI bleeding. Once again, resuscitation is the first step. You want to make sure, once again, you have adequate peripheral access. Admission to the appropriate level of care is essential. Remember, the most common cause of lower GI bleeding is diverticulosis. NG tube can be helpful if you suspect a brisk upper GI bleed. Um, you can do urgent rapid prep versus elective prep. So really the data shows no significant difference in early versus late re-bleed rates. So typically not necessary to do rapid purge, but something to consider. Um, you also wanna consider angiography or tagged RBC scan and a surgical console in massive GI bleeding. So for the boards, they may ask, you know, they may ask, want to ask when is the indication to call a surgeon in for lower GI bleeding. If it's massive, you can't get it stopped. Uh, or if a patient has recurrent diverticular GI bleeding, that is another indication to call in your surgeon. Okay, next question. A 65-year-old man presents with symptoms of recurrent melana. He's had four admissions in the past year. He has required a total of 15 units of packed RBCs in the last four, in the past year. And every time he comes in, the bleeding spontaneously stops. He's never had any abdominal pain and they've done workup, uh, workup for it. Past medical history uh, includes severe coronary artery disease. He has two stents in place, one recent in the last six months. He's on aspirin and clopidogrel. His past GI workup has included two upper endoscopies and two colonoscopies, which were both normal. He's also had an upper GI series, which was normal. So he's now being admitted for the fifth time for the same symptom of melana. His hemoglobin is eight. A tagged RBC scan is done immediately upon arrival into the ED because of his history, but it's negative for a bleeding source. What is the best diagnostic test in this situation for this patient? 
A, a video capsule endoscopy, B, a CT abdomen, C, a repeat EGD and colonoscopy, or D, mesenteric angiogram? Okay, so of those who answered, majority said video capsule endoscopy. So that is correct. So video capsule endoscopy is the best test to evaluate for obscure GI bleeding, uh, and meaning that you've done upper endoscopy, lower endoscopy, all sources have been excluded. And angiography would have been useful if the patient was actively bleeding. Um, in this case, the patient, he presents, uh, he had a tagged RBC scan, it was negative, so angiography wouldn't be helpful. Uh, the other choices were pertaining to, whoops, CT scan of the abdomen uh, would not show source of GI bleeding. That's if you were concern, concerned more about diverticulitis. He's already had two EGDs and two colonoscopies, so it would probably be very low yield. And then the mesenteric angiogram if you were concerned about mesenteric ischemia. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about GI ischemia. We break it down into three uh, subgroups, ischemic colitis, chronic mesenteric ischemia, and acute intestinal infarction, or acute mesenteric ischemia. So ischemic colitis usually presents with bloody diarrhea associated with severe abdominal pain. It usually involves the watershed area around the splenic flexure. Uh, usually it's uh, caused by a low flow state, not embolic. So, uh, you know, we're not thinking, in a patient who's at risk for clots, we don't really see as much ischemic colitis. Uh, patients who are at high risk are patients who are hypovolemic. Treatment is bowel rest, IV fluids, possibly antibiotics. Usually it resolves on its own. You can make the diagnosis by doing colonoscopy. Angiography is usually not needed. So really a lot of supportive care. Ischemic colitis can occur in young patients if they have a hypercoagulable state. In females, if they have a history of using OCPs, cocaine use can predispose to ischemic colitis. Pseudoephedrine use can also uh, predispose patients to ischemic colitis. And then long-distance runners. So a lot of you guys may hear this. This may be in a question stem on the boards. Is a marathon runner then presents with uh, rectal bleeding and left lower quadrant pain a couple hours after the marathon uh, he or she finished. And so that is usually due to ischemic colitis. And it can look like this. As you see right here, this is normal mucosa. And here you see slight blue haze. So this is the areas of ischemia. Um, now, chronic mesenteric ischemia, patients will present with this classic triad, and this, may, this would be in the, hist the question stem. Uh, abdominal pain after meals, so that's the intestinal angina. Uh, patients have decreased pain when they're eating smaller meals, or they purposely are not eating. They will have some weight loss. And then on physical exam, uh, they would report an abdominal brewy. Risk factors, smoking history, peripheral vascular disease, coronary artery disease. Diagnosis is made by CT angiogram or MR angiogram. Nowadays, Doppler ultrasound can also help. 
and then mesenteric angiography is the definitive test. So usually for board purposes, they will ask to say the diagnosis is made either by CT angiogram or MR angiogram. Treatment is either angioplasty or surgical bypass. So for board purposes, remember the classic triad of abdominal pain after meals, patients start to lose weight because they are eating less, abdominal brewery, the risk factors of smoking, peripheral vascular disease, and coronary disease will be in the history, diagnosis by CT or MR angiogram, and then treatment is either angioplasty or surgical bypass. Now, acute mesenteric ischemia. The patient will report severe acute abdominal pain with symptoms out of proportion to the abdominal exam. So that is the hallmark feature in the question stem for boards will be, it's severe pain, but on exam, uh, it's out of proportion. So on exam, it's a lot less. You're not seeing, you know, patients are complaining of severe, severe pain. They may also have some vomiting, diarrhea, possibly some occult blood, usually not uh, gross blood. History would be significant for atrial fibrillation, valvular heart disease, post-MI. On labs, they will have an acidosis, possibly an elevated amylase. Uh, the diagnosis is made by angiography, usually a CT angiography. Treatment will include angioplasty, embolectomy, or surgery. So the for the boards, remember, acute severe abdominal pain, symptoms out of proportion to physical exam. The boards really like to test on the pancreas, so uh, let's start with a question to introduce the pancreas section. Um, we will start with this question. Which of the following are poor clinical prognostic indicators for acute pancreatitis? A, a rising lipase, B, elevated creatinine level, C, hematocrit greater than 44, D, all of the above, or E, B, and C. So you can also use your test-taking skills from this too on how to choose. Okay. So majority of you guys answered B and C, which is the correct answer, and we're going to go through the uh, criteria this is coming from. So acute pancreatitis, let's talk about etiology. The number one and number two causes in the United States are gallstones and alcohol. Other causes do include trig hypertriglyceridemia, hypercalcemia. Uh, in small number of cases, it can occur from tumors or traumas. Medication-induced acute pancreatitis includes sulfa drugs, estrogen-containing drugs, thiocytes, and tetracyclines. And then iatrogenic causes of acute pancreatitis is uh, ERCP, so a post-ERCP pancreatitis. But remember, the number one and number two causes are gallstones and alcohol, and that's more likely what they're going to test you on. Metabolic causes they can test, especially on hypertriglyceridemia. Idiopathic pancreatitis can occur. These patients may have uh, small amounts of biliary cystals or sludge. Uh, cholecystectomy or sphincterotomy may be done if patients have idiopathic recurrent pancreatitis. Uh, however, um, this one's a little bit harder to test on on the internal medicine boards, but 
just important to know it is one of the causes and usually the cause is sludge. So presentation of acute pancreatitis, usually uh, epigastric upper abdominal pain radiating to the back. There can be some associated nausea and vomiting. On labs, uh, elevation of the amylase three times normal. Lipase can be elevated as well, but usually it's a later peak. Hemoconcentration is commonly seen. So you have an elevated hematocrit, leukocytosis. Uh, bilirubin can be greater than three. If your bilirubin is greater than three, if you have an increased ALT, it could suggest a common bile duct stone. Uh, you are in the management of acute pancreatitis. You usually don't need to do serial measurements of the amylase and lipase, but however, you do want to follow a CBC and CMP. So one of the first tests to do to rule out in the management of acute pancreatitis is a right upper quadrant sonogram or an abdominal sonogram to rule out gallstones. Um, the ultrasound is a very good test for uh, evaluating the gallbladder for gallstones. However, it's not as good for evaluating for common bile duct stones. Even if your ultrasound is negative, the patient can still have a common bile duct stone usually it can come from microlithiasis if your duct is not dilated. So something on the boards that they could test is patient presents with acute pancreatitis. What would be the first diagnostic imaging test to do? Now, from a diagnosis standpoint, the 2012 Atlanta criteria, two of the three must be present to make that diagnosis. Upper abdominal pain radiating through the back, serum amylase lipase is elevated, and then cross-sectional imaging consistent with acute pancreatitis. Now, imaging studies that if you are suspicious of pancreatic necrosis over the patient is looking sicker, you may be doing a CT scan to evaluate for pancreatic necrosis. You would look for other things you're looking at in a patient who presents with acute pancreatitis is looking at other organ systems. So what's their cardiovascular status? Are they appropriately resuscitated? What is their creatinine? What's their pulmonary function? Uh, do they have other metabolic abnormalities? Are, do they have any altered mental status? So these patients can get very sick very quickly. A lot of times we see very mild pancreatitis, usually due to gallstones, but in the severe cases, we really want to be active on the management. So for boards, really what they're looking at is you're looking at the other uh, systems, looking at the blood pressure, looking at the creatinine, looking at their O2 status. So Ransom's criteria, it's a severity scoring system. Uh, you are at higher risk if your age is greater than 55, glucose is greater than 200, white blood cell count is greater than 16, AST is greater than 250, LDH is greater than 350. Uh, you're requiring a lot of fluids. Um, if you see a decrease in your hematocrit, if your BUN is starting to rise, your calcium is going down, your P, uh, oxygen requirements are lowering. So these are Ransom's criteria. We look at, you know, day one and then a few days later. They also have newer scoring systems with the Apache and BICEP. So really, it's, I think what they're going to test on the boards are looking at the Ransom's criteria. They look at Apache as well, but Ransom's is more what they test on. Management of acute pancreatitis. Initially, you may make your patient NPO aggressive IV fluids. Uh, you Plus minus on the NG tube, uh, you may want to use one if the patient has an ileus or has vomiting. Uh, antibiotics only if there's necrosis on the CT, otherwise you don't need to use antibiotics. 
Uh, nutrition is a very important thing. You may want to consider jejunal feeding. Um, otherwise, TPN can be used however we prefer to use the gut if possible. Uh, gastric feeding might be okay, um, but the key thing is you want to get nutrition on board. So that's why it says feed the patient ASAP. So by NPO, that's the first day, but probably then you're going to start nutritional nutrition uh, within a couple days of the management. Um, next question. So this 40-year-old male presents to the ED with severe epigastric pain for 16 hours. The pain radiates to his back and is associated with vomiting. The patient neither smokes nor drinks alcohol. He does take ibuprofen occasionally for low back pain. He is in moderate distress with a heart rate of 105. Uh, also on exam, his epigastric region is tender. On his initial labs, his hemoglobin is 16, white blood cell count is 17, amylase is 150, and the 150 was normal for the reference range at this ED. Liver enzymes are normal, but his triglyceride level is 2,000. An abdominal flat plate x-ray is performed, and there's no free air under his diaphragm. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, acute pancreatitis, B, a duodenal ulcer, C, acute intestinal infarct, or D, ischemic colitis? Okay, so majority of you guys answered acute pancreatitis which is the diagnosis. So um, just some clinical, clinical pearls that they could test on like physical exam findings is if you have peri-umbilical discoloration in the setting of acute pancreatitis, that is considered a Cullen sign. And if you have flank discoloration, uh, it is called the Turner sign and it is a sign of retroperitoneal bleeding. Um, Remember, hypocalcemia can also cause muscle cramps, especially in acute pancreatitis. In a patient who has high triglycerides, it can mask the increase in your amylase. So like in our case that we just had with the question, the patient had a normal amylase, but his triglycerides are 2,000, but his clinical presentation was very much like acute pancreatitis, and so that can mask that lab. And it's also very important to differentiate from DKA, and also in our question to differentiate from a possible perforated duodenal ulcer. Um, pancreatic pseudocyst is a complication of acute pancreatitis. Um, you can see it in about 10 to 15% of patients who develop acute pancreatitis. It can be seen in patients with chronic, chronic pancreatitis, but not as common. It usually occurs two to four weeks after the acute episode. Majority of the pancreatic pseudocysts do resolve on their own. However, if the pancreatic pseudocyst is greater than five centimeters, it is unlikely to resolve. Sometimes the pseudocyst can get complicated. It can get infected. Uh, bleeding can occur inside the cyst. Um, how we manage the five centimeters of pseudocyst that's greater than five centimeters in the acute setting is really observation. At times, patients may need uh, cyst gastrostomy, so drainage of the cyst if it's enlarging 
or compression, compressing on surrounding organs. Uh, if there's recurrence of pain, uh, pain management is there. Uh, we don't really go to surgery as first-line management of a pancreatic pseudocyst. So for board purposes, you want to know the timing of when it can occur, uh, usually two to four weeks, and what is the management observation. Complications that can occur in a pseudocyst is infection or hemorrhage. Pancreatic abscess is another complication of acute pancreatitis. Patients will present with fever, shock. They may have a mass-like structure. Uh, diagnosis is made with CT scan with needle aspiration to, for culture, and then management is the appropriate antibiotics. The other thing that uh, the boards really like to test in the setting of acute pancreatitis is the timing or necessity of doing an ERCP. So the indications for ERCP in the setting of acute pancreatitis is if there is ongoing biliary obstruction if, uh, in the form of either cholangitis or biliary sepsis. So how do we figure that out? We would see a rising bilirubin. You would see a rising ALKFOS. The white blood cell count is elevated. You would see clinical symptoms and signs as well. Um, Sometimes the timing for an ERCP in the later stages of acute pancreatitis is if you're still suspecting that there is uh, stones or sludge in the common bile duct that need to be drained, or if it is unclear the etiology of the episode of pancreatitis, an ERCP could be considered. Now, uh, the other question is when to do a laparoscopic cholecystectomy in the setting of gallstone pancreatitis. Usually it should be after the pancreatitis has resolved, you can do it that hospitalization because if you don't, there's a high rate of recurrence. So differential diagnosis of acute pancreatitis does include acute cholecystitis, salpingitis, perforated ulcer, DKA, and ectopic pregnancy. Um, so the differential for abdominal pain and elevated amylase would include all of these six things. Now, some rare causes of pancreatitis is autoimmune pancreatitis. The hallmark features are, would be painless obstructive jaundice. And on cross-sectional imaging, the CT scan report would say a saus sausage-shaped pancreas. That is the pathognomonic finding for autoimmune pancreatitis. There are two types, a type 1 and a type 2. In type 1, uh, patients would have an elevated IgG4. So let's do a question. 55-year-old male presents for evaluation of diarrhea. He reports five loose stools daily without blood for the past three months. He also is reporting intermittent epigastric pain and weight loss. He has no other past medical history. On social history, he drinks a 12-pack of beer daily and smokes two packs uh, per day for the last 30 years. He uses no other medications. Uh, on physical exam, he is thin. He has mild tenderness in the epigastrium, is otherwise normal. Labs show a lipase of 30, albumin of 3.1, hemoglobin of 13.3, Stool cultures are all negative, uh, celiac markers were negative, and a colonoscopy was normal.
Which of the following diagnostic tests is the next step in management? A, a serum IgG4, B, a CT scan, C, a gastrin level, or D, glycated hemoglobin A1C? Okay, so majority of you guys answered a CT scan, which is the correct answer because we are suspicious this patient has chronic pancreatitis based on his alcohol, alcohol history. And yesterday we talked about chronic pancreatitis being one of the causes of a fatty diarrhea. Um, and this patient did have the appropriate workup of colonoscopy that was normal. Uh, one of the most common causes of chronic pancreatitis is alcohol use. However, 30% of cases of chronic pancreatitis are idiopathic. Cystic fibrosis is another cause. There are hereditary pancreas disorders. Pancreas divism uh, can cause a chronic pancreatitis and then autoimmune pancreatitis. So clinical features of chronic pancreatitis early on in the course, patients may have recurrent epigastric pain like the patient in our question. Also, late findings are the steatorrhea and the diabetes from pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. Uh, fecal fat can be very high, as we talked about yesterday. These patients with chronic pancreatitis are at higher risk for developing pancreas cancer. The diagnosis uh, can be made by looking for calcifications on imaging. Usually you don't see it on a KUB. You can see it more on uh, cross-sectional imaging such as a CT or MR. EUS uh, or CT are usually the next step uh, because even if you don't see it on KUB, doesn't mean that you won't see it on a CT or EUS. The classic diagnostic triad are the pancreatic calcifications, diabetes, and steatorrhea. So for the boards, they may have a question with a patient who presents who has, uh, you know, diabetes, who's now having fatty diarrhea and has a long alcohol history. We may want to think about pancreatic, uh, chronic pancreatitis as the, his diagnosis. They may ask what would be a management option. MRCP can be done in these patients as part of the evaluation to visualize the pancreatic and biliary tree. Um, you want to do the MRCP, MRCP first before you order an ERCP because MRCP is non-invasive. Secretin test is the most sensitive test that can be done for chronic pancreatitis uh, in clinical practice and usually on the internal medicine boards. They may ask if you want to do it, uh, and it's usually measuring the duodenal secretions. You're measuring the volume and the level of bicarb. But usually for internal medicine boards, it is that you would you do a CT scan or an endoscopic ultrasound to, make the, uh, to look for the calcifications. So for board testing purposes, MRCP would be done to visualize the pancreas and biliary tree. Secretin test is there, but usually not tested on the internal medicine boards, um, but also useful just to know. And usually in clinical practice, it's not done either, but it's just important to know because sometimes they like to throw out those complicated questions. So for chronic pancreatitis, 
review is pancreatic calcifications are seen on imaging, either CT or EUS. And if you're concerned about something in the biliary tree, that's when you would do an MRCP. Um, treatment for chronic pancreatitis usually is high-dose pancreatic enzyme supplementation. You want to encourage your patient to quit smoking. You do want them to try alcohol cessation as well. Um, if the patient has persistent pain, you want to look for other complications such as a pseudocyst or a malignancy. Um, and then the steatorrhea is also treated with pancreatic enzymes. So the hallmark treatment for chronic pancreatitis is are the pancreatic enzymes and pain control. So now we're going to switch gears and talk about other lesions in the pancreas. We talked about acute pancreatitis. We talked about chronic pancreatitis. Now we're going to talk about pancreas cysts. And pancreas cysts are very common in patients over the age of 70. Um, you can see them, usually we find them incidentally when we're doing imaging for other etiologies. Surveillance is only recommended if the cyst is greater than three centimeters. Majority of cysts are benign. Uh, they can involve the main pancreatic duct or they can come off the branch of the pancreatic duct. And so really for the boards, you need to know that there are different types of pancreas cysts, the mucinous cystic neoplasm and the introductal papillary mucinous neoplasm, also known as IPMN. Those are the most common. They can involve the main or branch ducts, and you need to follow them if they're greater than three centimeters. For those who are interested, uh, you can read more in detail about this by the guidelines, but for board purposes, it's important to know majority are asymptomatic and follow if they're greater than three centimeters. Pancreas neoplasm. So let's start with adenocarcinoma. Um, it is the fifth leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Um, most, uh, most pancreas cancers are located in the head of the pancreas. Presentation can be include jaundice, abdominal or back pain, and weight loss. Risk factors are smoking, chronic pancreatitis, and diabetes. Laboratory studies that can be abnormal are an elevated uh, CA199. Uh, advanced disease usually has a poor prognosis. Diagnosis is either made by CT-guided biopsy or needle-guided needle -guided EUS biopsy. If there are no metastatic lesions, surgery is cons uh, considered one of the management options. However, most pancreas cancers are not resectable. Uh, the most common reasons uh, for a pancreas cancer to be unresectable are either distant mets in the liver or encasement of the vessels. If there is mets or local vascular invasion, at times, an ERCP with stent placement is done uh, for, for these patients. And then gemcitabine has been shown to improve survival, reduce pain, and improve quality of life. So for board purposes, one of the reasons for non-resectability would be distant mets or encasement of the, uh, of the ve surrounding vessels. Other types of pancreatic uh, malignancies include gastronoma, insulinoma, VIPoma, and glucagonoma. So for boards, remember the hallmark rash of the necrolytic erythema, 
weight loss, diarrhea, and hyperglycemia. So those four things in the history would want us to consider glucagonoma. Insulinoma, if patients are presenting with lots of attacks of hypoglycemia. Gastronoma, as we talked about yesterday, uh, 50% of the gastronomas are found in the duodenums, elevated serum gastrin, diarrhea, recurrent duodenal ulcers. VIPoma, patients will have profuse secretory diarrhea and then increased serum VIP levels and a hypokalemia from the diarrhea. So a lot of these are presenting with the diarrhea uh, as their presenting symptom, but then looking in the question stem for other features of a skin rash, um, other symptoms of either hypoglycemia or hypokalemia. The, this ERCP is showing what we call the double duck sign, which is a hallmark feature of pancreas cancer. So this is the common bile duct. This is the pancreas duct. The tumor is sitting right here compressing on the duct. And then above the tumor is the dilation of both the common bile duct and the pancreas duct. So it's a hallmark feature seen in pancreas cancer. Next question, a 33-year-old male with no past medical history presents to the ED with 12 hours of severe right upper quadrant pain with fevers, nausea, and one episode of vomiting. He takes no medications. On exam, his temperature is 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Heart rate is 95. Blood pressure is 100 over 70. And his abdominal exam shows a positive Murphy sign. Labs show a white blood cell count of 14, total bile of 1.5, AALT of 55, AST of 60, ALKFOS is normal. Abdominal sonogram shows a thickened gallbladder wall with pericolocystic fluid with some gallstones and a normal-sized uh, common bile duct. What is the next step in management after antibiotics? A, ERCP with biliary sphincterotomy, B, a CCK HIDA scan, C, an EGD, or D, cholecystectomy. Okay. So majority of the audience did answer D, cholecystectomy. All right. So in this patient... Um, an ERCP with biliary sphincterotomy would probably not be indicated at this time because the common bile duct is of normal size. Uh, his bilirubin is slightly elevated but not rising, and he's not presenting with signs of biliary sepsis. A CCK HIDA scan would really not be the next step in this case because we are pretty confident that this patient has cholecystitis, so it doesn't add anything to it. And EGD is really not indicated in this patient because we are not concerned about peptic ulcer disease and his clinical history is more with uh, cholecystitis. So acute cholecystitis usually presents with acute severe abdominal pain with nausea, vomiting, fevers, elevated, elevated white blood cell count, and elevated LFTs. Biliary colic can be intermittent upper abdominal pain. It can also have some associated nausea and vomiting. Usually fever uh, is not in the presentation of biliary colic. Usually patients have a fatty food intolerance, but that is also a very kind of nonspecific symptom. So you really want to know the presentation of acute cholecystitis, the severe acute pain, 
uh, with nausea, vomiting, and fevers. 90% of cases of cholecystitis do occur because of gallstone obstruction. Uh, on exam, you'll have a positive Murphy signs when you're pushing the right upper quadrant, they have pain. Uh, on imaging, they'll have thickened gallbladder wall and presence of pericholocystic fluid. Management usually is IV antibiotics and then a cholecystectomy. Some cases may require percutaneous or endoscopic drainage if the patient uh, is too sick at that time to go for a surgical procedure. Now, acalculus cholecystitis, these are patients who are really sick and they can have cholecystitis without gallstones. Usually the pathophysiology is bacterial seeding of the gallbladder wall or gallbladder wall ischemia. We see, these, we see this in patients who have been hospitalized for other conditions. It's very common in ICU patients. Diagnosis is made by abdominal imaging, either sonogram or a radionuclide imaging study. Management is usually cholecystectomy if it's possible, if the patient is stable enough to go to the operating room. Otherwise, percutaneous drainage or endoscopic drainage would be the next step. Now, gallstones, common features, more common in women. Majority of patients are asymptomatic. Most stones are cholesterol. Other types are pigment stones. Risk factors for developing cholesterol gallstones are more common in Native Americans. If there's a family history of gallstone disease, you're at higher risk for developing it. Obesity. Um, in patients who have rapid weight loss, they're at higher risk for developing gallstones. Diabetes. Patients who um, have bowel rest and are on TPN are at higher risk for developing cholesterol gallstones. Hypertriglyceridemia estrogen-containing medications, including birth control, and then pregnancy. Pigment stones can occur in the bile duct in patients who have chronic infections. Uh, we can kind of see this more in patients who have strictures of the biliary tree, they've had a history of cholangitis, or they have an infection with chlor chlorinorhicus uh, organisms. Um, it can also occur in patients who have a lot of hemolytic anemia or hemolysis. We see pigment stones more commonly in Crohn's disease patients, and only 50% of these pigment stones are radiopaque, so sometimes we can miss them. Pain or symptom presentation of someone with gallstone disease. Pain is usually in the epigastric area or right upper quadrant. It can be constant or intermittent. It can last up to 20 to 60 minutes associated with nausea and vomiting. Uh, dyspepsia, heartburn, and fatty food intolerance are usually not symptoms in uh, hallmark symptoms in patients with gall gallstones. Ultrasound is about 90% sensitive for diagnosis and the uh, nuclear, nucle radionuclide imaging study of a HIDA scan is usually useful if you're concerned about an acute cystic duct obstruction where the stone is sitting right on top of the cystic duct. Treatment, if you're symptomatic, cholecystectomy. Remember, if you're asymptomatic, only about 20% of patients will develop symptoms, so just monitoring. Bile acid treatment, the benefit is usually not there. And so for board purposes, usually that's not an option as a treatment modality. You don't give bile acid treatment. So for boards, remember treatment is cholecystectomy if you are symptomatic with gallstones. 
Now, if there's a common bile duct stone, an ERCP may be indicated to drain the biliary tree and relieve the obstruction prior or after the cholecystectomy. All right. Let's do another question. Um, a 60-year-old female has a CT scan of the abdomen uh, ordered because she's been having mild upper abdominal discomfort, which did not improve after two weeks of omeprazole therapy. Uh, this exam showed calcification of the gallbladder wall. Which of the following do you recommend? A, cholecystectomy, B, ERCP, C, simply observe and repeat scan in one year. D, ultrasound of the abdomen. Okay, so majority answered A, cholecystectomy. All right. This patient has what's called a porcelain gallbladder. So it's an imaging study that shows a gallbladder with a calcified outline. And this suggests the possibility of cancer. So the next step or next indication would be a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Ultrasound imaging can be done, but it's not going to be, it's not going to really change. You're going to see calcification as well. Uh, so the next step would be to refer for cholecystectomy. So they like to test this on the boards too. Porcelain gallbladder, risk for a gallbladder cancer, you want to remove the gallbladder. Let's do another question. Um, a 60-year-old woman presents with acute onset of right upper quadrant pain and fever. She has had prior episodes of self-limited pain that never lasted more than 30 minutes. Now she's been in pain for two hours and it's not getting better. Past medical history is negative. She's not on any medications. On review of systems, she notes darkening of the urine. Her temperature is 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Heart rate is 100. Blood pressure is 130 over 80. And on exam, she has tenderness in the right upper quadrant without peritoneal signs. Her labs show a hemoglobin of 15, white blood cell count of 16, total bilirubin is 3, AST 120, ALT 110, ALK-FOS 400, amylase and lipase are normal. Her ultrasound shows that her gallbladder has many stones. There's no gallbladder wall thickening. Her uh, common bile duct is dilated with several apparent stones. And then antibiotics are started. What do you recommend at this point? A, an ERCP, B, an MRCP, C, an EGD, or D, an abdominal CT scan? Okay, majority of the audience said A, correct. So we have enough evidence on this case and from the labs, from her clinical presentation, her ultrasound that she has cholangitis. She has an elevated white blood cell count. Her LFTs are abnormal. Her total bile is elevated. Uh, she has a fever. Her ultrasound shows a dilated common bile duct with stones. So you can directly proceed to ERCP. 
if, let's say the case said the common bile duct was not dilated and the common bile duct appeared normal, then that would be more of a reason to do an MRCP to confirm whether there are stones in there. But if you're, but that would be if the patient had no evidence of cholangitis. The key point in this question is to identify that this patient has cholangitis based on the vital signs in her labs and that you would proceed to an ERCP to relieve the biliary sepsis. Okay, so potential board questions for someone on the gallstones is, what do you do as treatment for someone who is asymptomatic? You just monitor them. They may ask a question about treatment of a patient who has common bile duct stones. You would do an ERCP. It, you want to recognize the presentation of acalculus cholecystitis. So remember, it is going to occur in someone who is ill, hospitalized, an atypical presentation. Diagnosis will, sh on diagnostic studies, ultrasound would show a thickened gallbladder wall, no stones, the HIDA scan could be positive, and then the treatment is cholecystectomy. For cholangitis, you want to be able to identify Charcot's triad of abdominal pain, fever, and chills, and jaundice. Um, management of cholangitis, knowing antibiotics, ERCP with sphincterotomy, and then if the patient has gallstones, uh, cholecystectomy once their acute uh, infection has cleared up. So remember, potential questions are the treatment of the asymptomatic patient, common bile duct stones, and cholangitis. They really like to test on cholangitis and then acalculus cholecystitis. All right, now what they could also present a case is after the patient has had a cholecystectomy, the patient may have pain and increased LFTs. So if it's an immediate, if it's immediately in the post-op period right after surgery, we want to think about a bile duct leak. If it's like a delay, like maybe months to years after surgery, you still patients can still develop cholodocolithiasis. So the reason that's important is then you would do the appropriate imaging study for that. So th for the boards, they may test and think what would be your diagnosis if it's pain and increased LFTs right after surgery, bile duct leak. If it's months to years after surgery, then you want to think about cholodocolithiasis. This is a picture of an ERCP catheter. And this is the uh, ampulla, and they're putting the ERCP catheter in. And this is showing how this is a little cholesterol stone that they sweeped out of the common bile duct. Okay. Just a word about MRCP is it is sensitive for looking for common bile duct stones. It's as sensitive as the ERCP, but remember it is non-invasive, so you can uh, the risk of getting post-ERCP paint you don't get posterior CP pancreatitis, obviously, with an MRCP. You want to do the MRCP if your suspicion is fairly low to moderate for a common bile duct stone, because you don't want to do an invasive procedure unless you feel confident enough that, that it's indicated. So when would an MRCP be indicated? So let's say you have a question where there's a case of pancreatitis where the ultrasound shows maybe a slightly dilated CBD, but the bilirubin is normal, the ALK-FOS is normal, 
uh, and the patient is still having some symptoms, you may go to an MRCP first to confirm if there's any stones. Um, however, if there's a high index of suspicion where the common bile duct is dilated significantly on ultrasound, you can actually see the stones on ultrasound, then you would go straight to ERCP. So that is another thing they like to test on when to do ERCP versus when to do MRCP. This one? Okay, so this is a picture of an ERCP, and this is a common bile duct that is quite dilated, and this is the stone that is in the common bile duct. There's a stone right here, and there's a stone right here. This, it, this white tube is the scope, and then this faint, thin line is the ERCP catheter that is in the common bile duct, and then they're using other tools to sweep out the stone. So we have different uh, instruments that we use to sweep that stone out. So this is just showing that picture. Okay. Gallbladder cancer, less than 5,000 cases per year occur in the United States. Uh, it is usually diagnosed at a late stage. Risk factors do include cholelithiasis, gallbladder polyps, porcelain gallbladder, obesity, and if patients have an anomalous pancreas biliary junc junction, so if they have uh, like cholodococcus, symptoms do include right upper quadrant pain, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and jaundice. So very similar to the presentation of pancreas cancer. Um, diagnosis is usually by cross-sectional imaging, treatment, uh, surgery if it's resectable, chemo, XRT if it is not resectable. So for the boards, something they could ask are risk factors for gallbladder cancer if a patient presents with porcelain gallbladder, uh, gallbladder polyps that are increasing in size if they're being monitored, that would be an indication for cholecystectomy because they are at higher risk for developing gallbladder cancer. Okay. Cholangiocarcinoma. Um, also not very common. It is, it's one of its risk factors is primary sclerosing cholangitis. We talked a little bit about PSC yesterday. We're going to talk about it a little bit more um, when we cover the liver section. Um, cholangiocarcinoma uh, is more common in men. There is, in patients who have PSC, their lifetime risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma is about 10%. So patients with PSC, remember, they're at higher risk for developing colon cancer, higher risk for developing cholangiocarcinoma. Other risk factors for cholangiocarcinoma include a history of having a colodocal cyst or an infection with chlorinorhicus sinensis. So that is a parasitic infection. So for boards, remember, they may present a patient who has either PSC or a, or a history of a cholodococyst, what do you need to counsel your patient on? They're at higher risk for developing cholangiocarcinoma. Presentation, pruritus, painless jaundice, elevation in the ALK-FOS uh, or NGGT, CA-199 is greater than 100 in majority of cases. Diagnosis can be made with combination testing of CT, MRI, EUS, or an ERCP with brushing. Surgery, if it is found early, uh, transplant can be considered. Patients with PSC have a higher rate of developing cholangiocarcinoma, so that's in those patients, they may consider a transplant 
uh, if there's a suspicion. So, but for cholangiocarcinoma, you really want to just know what are the risk factors uh, for developing cholangiocarcinoma. So PSC is the big one. For board purposes, you want to know the presentation of painless jaundice pruritus. You want to know the risk factors and uh, the diagnostic testing that can be done. Now we're going on to the last portion of the GI section, which is liver diseases. Let's start out with a question. Um, a 55-year-old woman is presenting to your office for a routine checkup. She complains of mild fatigue, but she is otherwise healthy. She's on no medications. Her family history is negative for any GI or liver disease. On physical exam, you notice the presence of both xanthomas and xanthalasmas, as well as a liver that is slightly enlarged. She reports that she recently had labs done at her workplace. She was noted to have a normal CBC, a normal BMP. The only thing that was abnormal was that her, uh, though she had a normal AST and ALT, her alkaline phosphatase was elevated two times normal. She did undergo her routine screening colonoscopy. That was normal. So what would you recommend as the next step to help make the diagnosis of what she has? A, an anti-smooth muscle antibody. B, an anti-mitochondrial antibody. C, an evaluation for hemochromatosis with iron, TIBC, and the HFE gene. Or D, TTG to rule out celiac disease. Great. Majority of you guys answered uh, B, anti-mitochondrial antibody, which is the answer. We're going to talk about primary biliary cirrhosis. Anti-smooth muscle antibody would be one of the tests that we would do to look for autoimmune hepatitis. Uh, evaluation for hemochromatosis is usually done with iron, TIBC, and HFE gene. We're not as suspicious of that in this patient because she has xanthomas. And TTG is looking more to rule out celiac disease. There's nothing in her history that points towards celiac disease. She's not anemic. She has no bloating, diarrhea, um, and she denies any family history of celiac. So primary biliary cirrhosis, also known as PBC, it is uh, more commonly found in middle-aged women in their 50s and 60s. Usually the average age at diagnosis is 55 years old and 90% of patients who have PBC are women. And the main symptoms are fatigue, pruritus, and often you suspect this based on the symptoms alone. However, sometimes patients can be asymptomatic. You just see an elevated alkaline phosphatase and they may have a few xanthomas on physical exam. It is associated with other autoimmune disorders such as Sjogren's, Crest syndrome, or thyroiditis. On physical exam, you will see the xanthomas. You can see skin hyperpigmentation. Uh, that patients may have a slightly enlarged liver. If it's more advanced, they may have other signs of liver disease. The diagnosis includes an elevated alkaline phosphatase or a GGT. 
antibody levels by checking an anti-mitochondrial antibody. The level of the antibody does not correlate to the severity of their disease or how much scarring is in their liver. So there's no linear correlation there. Patients may have an increased cholesterol. They may have increased IgM markers. Bilirubin is usually normal. Usually you should do a liver biopsy to confirm the diagnosis and to stage the level of fibrosis uh, in the liver. Um, on your biopsy, they will see destruction of the small bile ducts, will have decreased biliary excretion. We can inc see increased bile acids and copper. Um, and, you know, we stage it based on stage one through four. The natural history, majority of patients are asymptomatic. Um, and if you're asymptomatic at time of diagnosis, usually survival is 10 to 16 years. If you're symptomatic, survival is seven years. So this is survival without transplant. So these are patients who need to be monitored. Usually they're going to be monitored by a GI or a hepatologist, but important to know, symptomatically, we treat them for their pruritus with uh, bile acid binders, such as cholestyramine. These patients are at higher risk for metabolic bone disease, so they need to be screened for osteopenia and osteoporosis. So that is something they could ask on the boards as a patient who has PBC, what else do they need to be monitored for? Uh, patients with PBC may have malabsorptive diarrhea, so you would treat that with restriction of their dietary fat and sometimes medium chain triglycerides. So possible PBC exam questions. Uh, treatment also, we would include ursodeoxycholic acid. Uh, if the bilirubin level is increasing, that does correlate with a poor prognosis. Know that these patients may need to be referred for transplant. So when to refer for transplant is when you start seeing a rising bilirubin. So they could have a question stem as patient with a history of PBC has been asymptomatic, but now you know a rising total bilirubin despite treatment with ursodeoxycholic acid, what would you do next? Remember the best test for diagnosis is the antimitochondrial antibody. Complications of PBC, they do include steatorrhea, weight loss, they're at risk for nutritional uh, fat-soluble vitamin deficiency, A, D, E, and K. Most clinically relevant is vitamin D because of the bone uh, loss and then liver failure or liver cirrhosis. So another, uh, I like this chart because it helps us distinguish between PBC, drug-induced autoimmune hepatitis, and autoimmune, auto, autoimmune hepatitis. So as we said in PBC, anti-mitochondrial antibody will be positive. In autoimmune uh, hepatitis, your anti-smooth muscle antibody will be positive. The, the anti-smooth antibody will be negative in PBC and drug-induced hepatitis. Um, at times, anti-mitochondrial antibody can be positive at low titers, but for testing purposes, autoimmune hepatitis, anti-smooth muscle antibody is positive. For PBC, anti-mitochondrial antibody is positive. Um, also remember, we want to, when you're looking at these uh, questions with the liver disease patients, uh, patients who are on certain medications, they can present the same way as PBC with an elevated ALK-FOS. So 
uh, three drugs that are very commonly known to cause cholestatic liver enzymes, meaning elevation in uh, ALKFOS or GGT are phenothiazines, steroids, and trimethoprim sulfa. Okay. PSC. So we've hinted a lot towards PSC yesterday and earlier today. PSC is primary sclerosing cholangitis, more common in men. Average age at diagnosis is 45. 75 to 80% of PSC patients have inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it does not relate to the severity of their IBD. Most patients are asymptomatic when they are diagnosed with primary sclerosing cholangitis. Later in their disease course, they can have symptoms of weakness, fatigue, itching, jaundice, and cholangitis. Uh, diagnosis on laboratory studies, they will have an elevated alkaline phosphatase, GGT, and possibly a rising total bilirubin. They can have a mild increase in their AST and ALT. ANCA usually is positive. MRCP or an ERCP would show the strictures of the intrahepatic and extrahepatic bile ducts, uh, classically known as that beating. Um, MRCP is usually the first test of choice in a patient with suspected PSC. Uh, a liver biopsy can be done, and we see onion skinning fibrosis. However, the diagnosis, just suspect the diagnosis based on the liver enzyme. So elevated ALKFOS and a bilirubin with a positive ANCA, possibly elevation in the AST, ALT. Management of PSC, um, it's a very slow, indolent course. Most will progress to liver failure. Patients with PSC are at higher risk for developing cholangiocarcinoma. Patients with PSC are at higher risk for developing colon cancer. Liver transplant may be indicated for end-stage PSC. Uh, you can give symptomatic uh, treatment for the pruritus with ursodeoxycholic acid. Um, if patients are having recurrent bouts of cholangitis, ERCP with stricture dilation can be done. Um, once again, they like to test on the boards. 80%, 75 to 80% of patients with PSC will have IBD. But remember, only 20% of patients with IBD will have PSC. So it's that 80-20 rule we use a lot in medicine. 80% of patients with PSC will have IBD, while only 20% of patients with IBD will have PSC. So when you're taking care of these IBD patients, if you start noticing a rise, you know, one in five IBD patients should have, you know, will have I, uh, PSC. Patients uh, with IBD and PSC, as we said, have a higher risk of colon cancer and the key thing they really like to test on the boards are when you would start their annual screening colonoscopy at the time that you diagnose their PSC. So that's one of the questions they really like to test on the boards is they'll give you a question stem. Patient has a two-year history or five-year history of panulcerticlitis that is well controlled with their mesalamine. Now you notice increasing LFTs. Uh, with an elevation in their ALKFOS and their T-BILI. Um, they had an MRCP that shows intrahepatic and extrahepatic beating. What are one of the recommendations that you would make? Just monitor, um, do a sigmoidoscopy, do a colonoscopy, follow LFT. So recommendation is colonoscopy to screen for colon cancer.
All right. So this is a, an ERCP picture of a patient with PSC, and it has this intrahepatic and extrahepatic beating. Um, so this is the hallmark picture of PSC. Okay. So before we start talking about the different hepatitis, um, important to know a couple things just for workup as we set the stage to talk about abnormal uh, elevation in uh, liver function tests. Remember, ALT is more liver-specific than AST. In alcohol, uh, AST will be higher compared to ALT. So if you have alcoholic hepatitis, AST is higher than the ALT. In viral hepatitis, ALT is higher than the AST. Remember the workup for persistently elevated ALT will include doing a full CMP, including ALKFOS, direct and indirect bilirubin, albumin, protime, CBC. You would check uh, for viral serologies, iron panel, and a ferritin. And we're going to talk about the different liver diseases associated with an a elevated ALT. So we'll start with the viral hepatitis. Hepatitis A, RNA virus, transmission is fecal-oral. In the acute infection, you would have a positive anti-hepatitis A virus IgM. There's no carrier state. It's very, rarely fulminant, and a vaccine is available. So one of the questions they can ask with hepatitis A is if a patient has chronic liver disease, they should be vaccinated for hepatitis A, one of the things they may ask. So fecal-oral transmission, and how do you test for acute infection, the anti-HAV IgM. More common in developing countries, uh, pro sometimes a rare complication can be prolonged cholestasis. Patients who have acute hepatitis A are usually presenting with very nonspecific symptoms of fatigue, nausea, headache, myalgias, very like viral prodrome. Later on in their uh, course, they can have right upper quadrant pain and jaundice. Rarely do you see fulminant cases of liver failure with hepatitis A. So this is just a picture showing what happens with your antibody levels and your ALT. So your ALT and jaundice occur a few weeks after the exposure. You here you get virus exposure. Here's when you start having symptoms and you note the uh, IgM being elevated. And then after you've cleared the infection or if you've had the vaccine, your IgG will be positive. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the hepatitis A vaccine. Uh, it's indicated if you're traveling or working in areas that are high risk. Uh, it's indicated for children in communities with high rates of disease, individuals with high risk behaviors, and patients with chronic liver disease. So one of the questions they will ask on the boards is a patient with chronic liver disease what may be some of the vaccinations they may need to get. A uh, patient with chronic hep C should get their hepatitis A and B vaccines if they are not immune. It is two doses, six months apart, and they are inactivated viruses. So hepatitis B, it is the only hepatitis DNA virus. Incubation is anywhere between one to six months. Transmission is through either sexual contact, IV drugs, or vertical transmission from mother to newborn. Uh, the immune response will usually determine the disease course. Majority of patients do clear their acute infection. However, uh, and most patients usually in the acute stage are asymptomatic. 
However, in complicated cases, they can present with a serum sickness due to the immune complex disease, including they may have symptoms of fever, urticaria, arthralgias. Uh, they can have symptoms of glomerular nephritis, vasculitis, or PAN. So uh, for the boards, they may ask some other associations with acute hepatitis B in a patient who has glomerular nephritis and vasculitis with this serum sickness presentation. Chronic hep B patients have very nonspecific symptoms uh, of malaise, fatigue, anorexia. Uh, if you guys remember this very complicated chart from medical school about all the serology, so we're going to just break this down slowly. So in hepatitis B uh, infection, you first see a rise in your hepatitis B surface antigen. Later, you will see a rise in your anti-hepatitis B core antibody. Then later on in the disease course, your hepatitis B surface antigen becomes undetectable. Then there's the window period of where your anti-hepatitis B core IgM, that's the acute stage, is that's in your window period. And then your hepatitis B E antigen correlates with how much virus and how infective you are. So let's go back to the chart and say, so initially you're going to have a rise here in your hep B surface antigen. Your E antigen is correlative of your infective stage. Here is that window period. And here's where you start. Here's the window period after you started to clear the virus and then you start producing and showing that you have anti-hepatitis B surface antibody. So for the boards, we're gonna kind of go through a couple scenarios uh, that they can test you on. So remember, hepatitis B surface antigen means the patient is making hepatitis B virus. Levels can be low or high, uh, and it can be acute or chronic. So if we go back to this chart here, in the acute stage, it can be low or high. It's just meaning you have virus in your system. Hepatitis B surface antibody almost always means the patient is either cured of their previous hepatitis B infection or that the patient has been vaccinated. So they may present a scenario where they have a 22-year-old medical student who comes in and uh, is unsure if they got their hepatitis B vaccine. And so they may ask what blood test would show if they've been vaccinated in the past. You would check the hepatitis B surface antibody. Okay. Hepatitis E antigen positive means the patient is highly infectious and is also actively making hepatitis B virus. So this we're seeing more and looking at it in the chronic patients with hepatitis B. We don't really look at E antigen in the acute. So in the acute, you're looking at the surface antigen and the IgM. In the chronic stages, you're looking at the E antigen positivity. Okay, so the risk of chronic hepatitis B inversely is related to age. So 90% of infants who are infected at birth uh, will can uh, carry on. However, if you get hepatitis B uh, when you're like in your teens or as an adult, the chances you develop chronic hepatitis B, you will clear it. So if you get it earlier on in age, there's more likelihood you will have chronic hep B versus when you get hepatitis B at an older age. 
uh, it's more likely that you will clear it. Okay, so let's go through the chart. This is what they like to test on. So these three, uh, this three, these three things are the ones they really like to test on. So acute infection, your Hep B surface antigen will be positive, Hep B core antibody, and Hep B surface antibody will be negative. So they could present a scenario where they have a 35-year-old female who complains of fatigue, myalgias, um, had recent unprotected sex, HIV test is negative, uh, LFTs are slightly elevated, you draw serologies and they're presenting someone with a serology of surface antigen positive, antibody negative, core antibody negative. Is this an acute infection or this is a past infection? More acute. Um, if a patient has immu been immunized, so let's skip the second one right here and let's go to the immunized one. So if they have surface antigen negative, have B core antibody negative and surface antibody positive, it can mean one of two things. They've been vaccinated or they've had a history of remote infection. That's another one they really like to test on is figuring out has the patient been immunized or is it a sign of remote infection? Now, there is the patient who could have the acute infection and now is becoming, going on to the chronic stage and they're an inactive carrier. So they're surface antigen positive, core antibody positive, but surface antibody negative. So this is the chronic inactive carrier. They likely, if you draw their DNA levels are fairly low, LFTs are normal, we monitor them. Now, patients who have had remote infection, so that's where they've had surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, and surface antibody positive. So their surface antigen, they've cleared their infection, they're not infected, but they've showed uh, evidence of remote infection. So remote infection can be core antibody negative or it can also be core antibody positive. So that's how you can also tell the difference sometimes between vaccinated patients would only be surface antibody positive. Patients who receive the vaccine would never have a core antibody positivity. Um, let me just think. If, if you have a patient who has surface, if they present a scenario where your surface antigen is negative, your surface antibody is negative, but your core antibody is positive, this can mean one of three things. That it's a false positive, uh, that you've had a remote infection, but you're not at the point where you've started to make your own surface antibody, or you are in that window period on the chart. So let's go back to that. You're in this window period where you've cleared your surface antigen, you have core antibody, but you haven't started producing the surface antibody. That is le less likely to be tested on the boards, but important to understand because there is a possibility. They like to test all these combinations, but really they like to test acute infection, remote infection, and then vaccination status. Okay.
Now patients, as I said, majority of adults who get acute hepatitis B, they do clear it and then they show signs of having remote infection. But there are a small percentage of patients who go on to become chronic active hepatitis B carriers. So they will be surface antigen positive. Usually they will also be E antigen positive. Um, they can have a positive core antibody and then they have high levels of HBV DNA. So just like in HIV treatments, we measure uh, virus levels. We also do that in hepatitis B because that helps us determine management. So in the acute infect, before we start talking about a little bit more about chronic, in the acute infectious uh, hepatitis B, we usually don't give treatment because majority of patients clear it on their own. There's really no need for use of um, antivirals for treatment of acute hepatitis B in adult patients. Yes. So we'll go through that again. So we're going to go through chronic active hepatitis B. Um, e antigen positive means that you are actively producing virus. So you are infective. So this is why we treat patients who are E antigen positive. Um, okay. So in chronic hepatitis B, uh, there are two states. There's the inactive patient and the active patient. So in the inactive, they have low DNA levels. In the active patient, they have high levels of DNA. And then that's how we determine whether they should get treatment. Okay. Because in the inactive, they have a very low inflammatory response. Or they're not uh, actively producing a lot of virus. So those are the patients you can watch. Now, um, a little bit about hepatitis B vaccinations. It's a recombinant vaccine. Um, it is indicated uh, for, it is one of the standard vaccinations now given. It's also indicated for healthcare workers. It's indicated for patients with liver disease, patients who are immunosuppressed, um, and also in patients who have chronic renal failure. Once you give a vaccine to uh, a patient, it is important to check that they've mounted their immunity by checking the hepatitis B surface antibody. Um, in certain cases, we may give Hbig, the immunoglobulin, to also help with post-exposure, but that's more in uh, a different scenario. So I'm going to give that to you. Okay. Let's say we have a question where you have a hepatitis B surface antigen positive mother. She is an active carrier of hepatitis B. She has high levels of DNA. She gives birth to her child. What is the recommendation? Um, do you give the newborn the HBIG plus the vaccine? Do you wait two months to give the vaccine? Uh, do you wait two months to give both? Or do you do nothing? A, right, so you're going to give this patient or the give the baby the immunoglobulin and the vaccine because the baby's risk of getting hepatitis B is very high through vertical transmission. So this is uh, one of the cases where we give the HBIG uh, immunoglobulin plus the vaccine. Now, the question is, who do we treat for chronic hepatitis B? 
We want to consider treatment for anyone who's hepatitis B E antigen positive, or you do want to treat someone who is E antigen negative with a higher level of DNA and an elevated ALT, or we consider treatment in someone who has compensated cirrhosis with an HBV DNA of greater than 2000. So for board purposes, important to remember, consider treatment for people who are E antigen positive, uh, who have patients who are E antigen negative with a DNA greater than 20,000 or ALT two times upper limit of normal and patients with compensated cirrhosis with an HBV DNA of greater than 2000. You do not need to know the exact treatments because the treatment algorithms are changing for hepatitis B. One thing you may want to know that can come up on the exams is that lamivudine, one of the older treatments, has the highest risk of developing resistance. So we're, I'm not going to go into detail about the different treatments because the algorithms keep changing. So because of that, uh, it's hard to do board questions for that. But it's important to know lamivudine, developing resistance, and knowing indications for treatment for chronic hep B. So to review again, chronic hep B, different treatments. Lamivudine has highest rates of resistance, so we don't use it as often. Uh, you want to treat your E antigen positive patients, compensated cirrhosis uh, with the uh, HBV DNA of greater than 2000, and then the E antigen negative patients who have a high level of DNA. Also, what we need to know is when to screen for HCC in the hepatitis B patient. So chronic hep B patients carry a lifetime risk of developing HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, at about 20%. The risk of developing HCC is, varies with viral load. So we know the higher the viral load, the higher the risk of developing HCC. So screening recommendations at this point are using ultrasound every six months. And the patients who should be screened are Asian men who are greater than age 40, Asian women who are greater than age 50. These are Asian men with chronic hep B. It doesn't matter if they have cirrhosis or not. These are Asian women who have chronic hep B. All patients who have hep B-associated cirrhosis should be screened for HCC. If there is a family history of HCC, uh, those patients should be screened. Now, patients who are of African descent from Africa who have hepatitis B should start getting screened at age 20 because their rate of developing HCC is much higher. And the other group to screen are patients who have chronic hep B over the age of 40 with elevated ALT or a high level of DNA because we said uh, the, there's an increased risk of developing HCC when you have high levels of DNA. So potential board question could be, you have a 45-year-old Asian male who, uh, who got chronic hepatitis B through vertical transmission, who now is presenting to you for follow-up, and he has a normal ALT, his... Uh, his e, he's E antigen positive, but he has a low HBV DNA level. 
He's not on any treatment for hep B uh, because his DNA levels are low. What do you recommend? So they're trying to get you to say he needs to be screened for HCC because he's of Asian descent and he had it through vertical transmission. So you really look in the question stems at the uh, pop, if they're describing like an ethnicity. So in Africans, it's always uh, after the age of 20. And in Asians, Asian men greater than age 40, Asian women greater than the age of 50. Anyone with HBV-associated cirrhosis or anyone with cirrhosis should be screened for HCC, um, no matter what the etiology. But for hepatitis B, we start screening even earlier. Okay. Let's do a question. All right. This is a common scenario. 37-year-old Vietnamese male tried to donate blood but was denied and then told to see his physician. He denies any medical history, denies any history of alcohol, denies any new medications, IV drug use. He does not know his family history very well. His physical exam is normal. Labs show that he has a normal ALT, normal AST. Total bilirubin is normal. His hep B surface antigen is positive. Hep B surface antibody is negative. He has hep B E antibody positive. Hepatitis B E antigen negative. Hep B DNA is 50 international units per ml, and that's fairly in the range that's fairly low. Um, so it's a low DNA level. So surface antibody positive. E antigen negative, but E antibody positive, and his, he has low level of HBV DNA. At this point, what are your recommendations? A, start entecavir. B, check an AFP every two years. C, HCC screening with ultrasound every six months starting now. Or D, HCC screening with ultrasounds every six months starting at the age of 40. Okay, so majority of the audience answered D, HCC screening with ultrasound every six months starting at the age of 40. So let's go back because I know I saw a couple of confused looks on the uh, serology. So surface antigen positive. So we know he has chronic hep B. Surface antibody negative, which we would expect. Hep, the confusion I think was that he was E antigen negative, but E antibody positive with a low DNA. So what that's saying is that he's that chronic inactive carrier where he's not highly infective and he has a low DNA level, so he does not need antiviral therapy. Um, if we looked, if we go back to the slide where we look at what are the indications for treatment, oops, anyone who's E antigen negative, or if they are E antigen negative with a DNA greater than 20,000 or if and their ALT is elevated. So our patient in this scenario is E antigen negative, but his DNA level is 50 international units per ml and his ALT is normal. So he does not need to be treated. So really the question was going to about the screening. AFP is no longer being used as a screening tool for HCC. So for board testing, remember ultrasound, not AFP.
Okay. All right. Now we're going to switch gears to hepatitis C. Um, it is an RNA virus genotype. There are several different genotypes, one through six. Genotype one is the most common in the United States. It is hepatitis C virus is very prone to mutation, leads to a lot of diversity. Um, hepatitis C is parenterally transmitted. It can also cause an acute and chronic infection. Um, so if we look at kind of comparing B and C, majority of hepatitis B is self-limited, 99 to 5%. Virus levels in hepatitis B can be high. Hepatitis C, only 10 to 15% of cases are like self-limited where they completely clear the virus. And in hepatitis C, usually they have like a low level of virus compared to hepatitis B. So it is the most common cause of chronic viral hepatitis in the United States. So we have two, com you know, two major hepatitis virus strains, B and C. C is more common than B. Uh, probably about 4 million Americans uh, are infected with hepatitis C. Specifically, also one of the screening guidelines say that the baby boomer age group range should be screened for hepatitis C. Complications of hepatitis C, as you know, are cirrhosis, the complications of cirrhosis, and HCC. Hepatitis C still remains the number one cause for liver transplant in the United States. Uh, people who are at higher risk for developing hepatitis C, IV drug use, high-risk sexual behavior, blood transfusion before 1990, tattoos, piercings, prisoners, and snorting cocaine. Um, peak incidence was probably in 1989. Current risk of developing hepatitis C after a blood transfusion is very minuscule. Uh, majority of the new infections that we're seeing of hepatitis C are related to IV drug use. So that's more on the epidemiology. Transmission, uh, sexual transmission of hepatitis C is extremely low. They did a study looking at if someone is in a monogamous relationship for 10 to 20 years, the rate of transmission is about 5%. Household contact, extremely low. Maternal infant transmission, less than 5%. Opposite of hepatitis B, Healthcare worker transmission from a needle stick is 5 to 10% from an infected patient. Um, sometimes we don't usually give treatment after a needle stick. Okay, incubation is about seven weeks for the acute. Chronic phase, uh, there can be sort of three different states where patients are mainly carriers. They have no symptoms, normal LFTs. 50% of patients with chronic hep C have no symptoms and have abnormal LFTs. Then 20% of patients will have liver disease as well at liver disease with symptoms as well as abnormal LFTs. Um, before we start talking about treatment, one thing for board testing is that it can be associated with some extrahepatic diseases, specifically small vessel vasculitis. Uh, patients have an association with cryoglomulonemia or porphyry cutanea tarda. So one of the board questions they could ask is they could put a picture. I couldn't find a good picture of this um, that was not copyrighted, but of porphyry cutanea tarda, and it looks like severe blistering on your hands, and that is associated with hepatitis C. So something you want to know is porphyry cutanea tarda with the blisters, um, and then the small, small vessel vasculitis that can be associated with hepatitis C. 
Uh, there's also an associated neuropathy and glomerular nephritis with the cryoglomulinemia. So know the extrahepatic manifestations of hepatitis C as well as for, um, for hepatitis B. Natural history of hepatitis C, 20% of patients will develop cirrhosis within 20 years. The risk of cirrhosis goes up with alcohol consumption. Um, usually after cirrhosis is established, five-year survival is about 90%. However, if you start having some signs of liver decompensation, uh, your five-year survival goes down. So how we test, you do a confirmatory HC, you do the antibody testing, and then you can do the HCV RNA levels. You can do a liver biopsy if you're trying to assess for degree of cirrhosis or fibrosis, but um, that's not commonly done anymore. Um, it was previously done because of the treatment. So the coolest thing about hepatitis C is probably in 10 years, it should be cured with all these new treatments. So treatments for hepatitis C are so rapidly evolving. You do not need to know those regimens for the boards because they keep changing them. Um, but I think it's important to know when you should refer for treatment. And especially nowadays, the treatments are so good with so few side effects that we're seeing great responses. The treatments are now interferon-free, ribavirin-free. There's a small chance they could ask, what's the side effect of ribavirin? It's a hemolytic anemia. Um, we want to know, they, they ask, what are the indications for treatment? Because they can't ask about the treatments because the regimens are evolving so quickly and changing. Um, there's a whole website about hepatitis C treatments and the changes, but uh, just some of the drugs, as you guys all know, are sevastavir, ledesivir, sevastavir combination. Um, they have other uh, combinations as well. So I just listed them for your knowledge, but I'm not going into detail about all the different genotypes, how long, how often. Um, important to know, genotype 1 is most common in the U.S. Genotypes 2 and 3 usually have better response rates. But now treatment response is greater than 90% with all these new combinations. With the old therapies, they were a lot lower. That's when the liver biopsy stuff was done. So um, one thing they may ask, they could ask about treatment is not the specific treatment, but who is going to have poor prognosis or less uh, robust response on treatment or is the overweight patient. Patients who are going to have the better responses are women if you're under the age of 40 and you have less fibrosis on a biopsy, if a biopsy was done. They can ask about ribavirin side effects, hemolytic anemia. And one of the things uh, they really like to test is someone who has chronic hep C, one of the things that should be recommended is hepatitis A and B vaccination. So it's just hard to treat, uh, hard to test on evolving treatments. So just know the other stuff. Once again, screening for hep hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, surveillance is indicated. You use ultrasound. AFP is no longer indicated. Um, as we cure and treat hepatitis C, we see that we'll have less infections, but I think we'll probably be picking up more cancer as in this treatment area because in this treatment era because we're picking up the older cases. Um, hepatitis D, what you need to know about it is it can be severe if it super infects your hepatitis B carrier. It's usually found in combination with hepatitis B, found in IV drug users. 
Um, and that's the main thing they could ask you about that. Diagnosis is by an IgM. Hepatitis E, it's fecal oral transmission just like hepatitis A. It's more common in the Far East, Africa, and Central America. Um, one of the things they could ask is that it is highly fulminant in patients who are pregnant. The mortality is 20%. So a possibility they could ask on the boards with hepatitis E is a pregnant woman who has hepatitis E, uh, they have a very high risk of mortality. Okay, so those are the viral hepatitis. Just kind of a recap before we start going to uh, autoimmune hepatitis is viral hepatitis A, fecal oral, hepatitis E, fecal oral, hepatitis B and C, uh, parental transmission. Screening for HCC is very important uh, in both hepatitis B and C. Hepatitis B, you start screening earlier, as we talked about in certain po ethnic populations. If you're of African descent with hepatitis B, you start screening at age 20. Asian descent, men 40, women 50. Anyone with cirrhosis from hepatitis B or C gets screened uh, every six months. And um, all hepatitis C patients should also be screened. So uh, know the screening guidelines for hepatitis C. Then treatment for hepatitis C, you don't need to know the actual treatments because they're changing, but you need to know the side effects and indications for treatment. And then for hepatitis B, indications for treatment as we reviewed is E antigen positive. If you're E antigen negative with a high DNA level or an abnormal elevated ALT. So just to kind of simply break it down, know those basics for the viral hepatitis. Now, when we were talking about PBC, we briefly talked about autoimmune hepatitis, but we're gonna go in a little bit more detail. Um, autoimmune hepatitis is more common in young women. Remember, primary biliary cirrhosis that we talked about is more common in middle-aged women. This can present in, you know, it can be indolent, just like it is in PBC but there's also an acute form that can lead to liver failure and then just the chronic form. Majority of patients are asymptomatic or they have some non-specific symptoms of like fatigue, malaise. Um, we may see an elevation in their AST and ALT. 80% of patients will have a positive anti-smooth muscle antibody. They can also have low titers of other autoantibodies of ANA, AMA, and gamma globulins. So the IG, IG. Uh, immunoglobulin levels. How do we diagnose? We use the different serologies and sometimes we may need a biopsy to stage it. So we're going to do a question. 24-year-old female uh, presents with several months of fatigue. She denies abdominal pain, jaundice, or itching. She's not taking any medications. She's not taking any over-the-counter preparations, herbs, or supplements. She denies any alcohol, any recent travel or high-risk behavior. Physical exam is normal, and she has no hepatomegaly. Her initial labs show an ALT of 120, AST of 90, a normal ALK-FOS, and a normal bilirubin. Subsequent testing shows normal iron panel, ceruloplasmin is within normal limits, and her hepatitis B a, B, and C are negative. She does have an elevated anti-smooth muscle antibody. Which therapy is likely to help her? A, pegylated interferon. B, prednisone and azathioprine. C, ursodecolic 
deoxycholic acid, or D-cholestyramine. Okay, so in this question, we know the patient has autoimmune hepatitis and they're asking what are the treatments. So pegylated interferon was treatments that were used for hepatitis B and C in the past, not really used. Ursodecolic deoxycholic acid we use in the treatment of PBC. Cholestyramine we may use for symptomatic relief for the pruritus associated with liver disease. So Prednisone and azathioprine is usually standard therapy for autoimmune hepatitis. And usually you start with a higher dose of prednisone as azathioprine takes a few months to kick in and then you start tapering the prednisone over time. Indications for treatment of autoimmune hepatitis is if your AST is greater than 10 times upper limit of normal, ALT greater than five times upper limit of normal, elevated immunoglobulin levels, if there's fibrosis on the biopsy, um, if you're having symptoms or on biopsy, if there's evidence of interface hepatitis. Now, to, it's sometimes difficult to differentiate autoimmune hepatitis from drug-related drug liver diseases, but we're going to go through some common presentations um, of different types of drugs that can cause certain patterns of uh, liver disease. So uh, three common drugs that can cause hepatitis, meaning elevation in AST, ALT, are methyl dopa, nitrofuritonin, and phenytoin. Cholestatic picture, meaning elevated with an elevated ALKFOS, elevated GGTR, or oral contraceptives, anabolic steroids, erythromycin, or chlorpromazine. Fulminant hepatitis can occur with ketoconazole or INH. Indolent cirrhosis could be long-term use of methotrexate. So some of the drug patterns or liver patterns that can be seen with certain drugs. So this is another slide you want to know well for the boards is just knowing which drugs are associated with certain patterns of disease. Now the other one they'll likely test on is acetaminophen. So um, in our liver, we have glutathione, which really normally its job is to reduce any toxic metabolites. Now, when we have glutathione depletion, uh, we can get toxin accumulation. So very simple kind of pathophys there. So when we have acetaminophen overdose, we do have glutathione depletion and we can get acetaminophen toxicity. So we do treat using N-acetylcysteine in um, acute acetaminophen toxicity. So it, the question that could come up on the boards is a case scenario where you have a 22-year-old female who is brought in by her family. They see a big bottle of acetaminophen. They don't know how many tablets she took. She took it within the last four to eight hours. They suspect um, AST, ALT are elevated in the thousands. Um, her mental status is waxing and waning a little. They may ask, what is one of the first treatments you would do in addition to referring to a transplant center? N-acetylcysteine would be that answer. So um, they may ask about acetaminophen toxicity in that way.
This is just talking about if you have chronic liver disease or if you're using acetaminophen in combination with alcohol, you don't need to be using, you don't need to overdose on as much acetaminophen. And then also if you've had uh, gastric bypass surgery or if you've been dieting or malnourished, your glutathione levels are depleted in those states. So that's why uh, even using less acetaminophen can cause the toxicity. So for acetaminophen toxicity, there could be a question about management after diagnosis or another question that could be asked is when to refer to a liver transplant center. And you want to start that referral process early because these patients can, um, they can, they can go down very quickly. So you want to do that as one of the initial things. So that's another thing they could test on. Uh, another thing that can cause elevation or a hepatitis picture is alcoholic liver disease. You get a macrovesicular fat accumulation. Women are more susceptible. AST is usually higher than the ALT in this sense. The AST ALT numbers are in the two to 300, uh, range. Uh, just as a reminder is like when we say one drink, it's the equivalent of one point ounce of hard alcohol, four ounces of wine, or an eight ounce of beer. Um, possible question, another question that could occur on liver is you have a 28 year old female who is on oral contraceptives. She has right upper quadrant pain. Uh, she comes into the ED. She has a CAT scan that shows this. So on this CAT scan, this is the big abnormality. Um, she has a hepatic adenoma. Young women typically present with a solitary liver lesion. Uh, oral contraceptive use or glycogen storage disease are risk factors. They can cause right upper quadrant pain. Rare complication could be rupture hemoper hemoperitoneum. Okay. Um, Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, very common. Um, thing they may want to test about because of the rates of obesity. Typical patient is obese, diabetic, hyperlipidemia. It can cause uh, enlargement of the liver. Uh, the enlargement of the liver, patients can get right upper quadrant pain. We do have an increase in the ALT and AST, but ALT is higher than the AST. So in alcoholic liver disease, it was reverse. AST is greater than ALT. On ultrasound, uh, fat is seen diffusely. It can cause fibrosis and cirrhosis. Uh, patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can have a low-level tighter positivity of an anti-smooth muscle antibody. So they may try to trick you on the boards of going towards autoimmune hepatitis versus non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, HCC, we talked a lot about with uh, when we were talking about the viral hepatitis. Uh, in the screening part of it, when you make the diagnosis, you can check an AFP level. Um, we are seeing it more commonly. The incidence is rising. Leading causes, as we talked about, are hepatitis C, hepatitis B, alcohol. Um, surveillance is every six months. One thing they could test on along with the screening surveillance for hepatitis C is the Milan criteria for when do you refer for liver transplant for HCC. So you can refer for liver transplant if you have a lesion that is less than five centimeters or three lesions all under three centimeters and that there's no lymphatic spread or macrovascular invasion. 
biopsy is not mandatory for uh, transplant. So a p potential question could be, when do you refer for uh, liver transplant evaluation? Um, now we're going to talk more about advanced liver disease of cirrhosis, because we've kind of set the stage by talking about the viral hepatitis, alcoholic liver disease, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, viral hepatitis B and C and alcohol are the most common causes of cirrhosis in the United States. There are uncommon causes such as hemochromatosis, which is an iron overload state, Wilson's disease, which is a copper accumulation, biliary disease, right-sided heart failure. Those are all really rare causes. A1AT stands for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, extremely rare as well. Um, schistosomiasis in um, the Middle East is another uh, risk factor for cirrhosis. So we're going to start our discussion on cirrhosis with a question. A uh, 50-year-old patient has cirrhosis due to hepatitis C and alcohol. He has now been abstinent from alcohol for five years. So as part of routine screening, he has an EGD found. Uh, he, he undergoes an EGD, and on his EGD, he has large varices in his distal esophagus. He has never had any episodes of variceal bleeding, nor has he had any other complications like spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Which of the following would you recommend? A, EGD with sclerotherapy of the varices. B, initiate beta blocker therapy with propranolol. C, refer to radiology for a TIPS procedure, or D, no treatment for now and just repeat an EGD in six months. All right. So majority of you guys answered B, initiate beta blocker therapy with propranolol. Um, EGD with sclerotherapy, we normally do when it's more of an acute bleed. Another, if, there's, if there was an option here, it could have been EGD with banding. So it was a trick question to see if you caught sclerotherapy versus banding. So of these answer choices, initiate a beta blocker therapy with propranolol. But if EGD with banding was an option, that would be the answer. So... In cirrhosis, patients are at higher risk for developing variceal hemorrhage. Um, older data did show that there was a 30% mortality associated with variceal hemorrhage. Uh, data shows about 30% of patients with cirrhosis will develop a variceal bleed. The risk for bleeding is higher with large varices compared to smaller varices. So primary prevention is beta blocker therapy um, or banding. You can do elective banding if they have large varices. Acute treatment is banding or sclerotherapy with injection and octreotide infusion. In patients who are having recurrent variceal bleed or if it's a massive variceal bleed that's difficult to stop, uh, an option can be TIPS. So someone asked earlier, what does variceal banding look like? I actually have a picture. So this is the varix, and this is like a very tight, it basically looks like a very small, tight, thick rubber band. And you basically put it on the varix, and it will scar down, and you do repeated banding sessions every two to three weeks. 
Okay, so possible exam questions could be patient with cirrhosis who presents with a variceal bleed. They're placed on octreotide. They undergo variceal banding. What else do you need to do? The answer would be you want to give them antibiotics to prevent SBP. So another possible question can be a patient with cirrhosis who you suspect has a variceal bleed because they're presenting with an upper GI bleed. They may ask about transfusion requirement. They have a hemoglobin of nine. Would you transfuse? We talked earlier during the GI bleeding section is in cirrhotics, they're bleeding because of increased portal pressure. If you overly transfuse, it can increase their risk of bleeding. So that's another possible question they can ask. You need to, another comp, other complications of cirrhosis. So we talked about GI bleeding. There's hepatic encephalopathy. Risk factors for developing encephalopathy are current GI bleed, infections, high protein intake, sedatives. Uh, patients will present with hyperreflexia or asterisks. Treatments are um, lactulose, antibiotics such as neomycin, metronidazole, or rifaximin. Um, another complication is hepatorenal syndrome. It presents as oliguric renal failure. Uh, patients have a renal vasoconstriction. Usually it's iatrogenic. Your urine sodium is less than 10. Treatments include volume expansion with fluids and albumin, and you can use midodrine and octreotide. The fourth complication of cirrhosis to know about, which is they like to test a lot on is ascites. So if when a patient has ascites and it comes out bloody, uh, we want to be thinking about possible malignancy. If the ascites fluid is cloudy, we want to think about infection. If it's more of that milky appearance, lymphatic obstruction. The key thing with ascites management, and especially for test questions, they're really looking at this serum albumin to ascites albumin gradient, the SAG. And they want us to know the different causes if you have a high SAG or a low SAG. So greater than 1.1 SAG is portal hypertension, a low SAG, other causes, causes of ascites include uh, nephrotic disease, pancreatitis, and peritoneal carcinomatosis. So um, a chart that I put in is if you have um, high SAG versus low SAG and then looking at the ascites total protein. Um, so in low SAG, TB peritonitis, nephrotic syndrome, pancreatitis, peritoneal carcinomatosis. Um, in high SAG, cirrhosis, liver failure, Bud Chiari syndrome, myxedema, myxedema, and then right-sided heart failure. And how you differentiate liver disease from the heart failure is looking at the total protein content. So they may present a question with the um, SAG numbers and ask what is the potential cause. And they really like to test on the low SAG, low SAG etiologies. Management of ascites, sodium restriction is vital. Um, combination diuretics with furosemide and spironolactone. They could ask a question if a patient has refractory ascites, what is an option for management, either TIPS or transplant? Also in patients with ascites, we want to avoid uh, NSAIDs and aminoglycosides, as well as aspirin if possible. Speaking just a little bit about TIPS, 
the things they could test you on are contraindications to tips is um, hepatic encephalopathy or heart failure are contraindications to tips. Having a low platelet count is not a contraindication to tips. Remember, it's not used as primary prophylaxis for bleeding. So like in our question that we had, what would be the indication for primary prophylaxis in a patient with cirrhosis with large varices would be either EGD with banding or beta blockers. The main indications for tips are variceal hemorrhage or refractory ascites. So that would be something, a potential question on that. Okay. SBP. Risk factors for SBP are if you've had prior SBP. Uh, bilirubin is greater than 2.5. Your total protein in your ascites fluid is less than 1 and upper GI bleeds. So that's why patients with variceal hemorrhage, we give five days of antibiotics to prevent SBP. Diagnosis is made by doing a paracentesis. Uh, there are greater than 250 neutrophils. Common organisms uh, that can cause SBP are E. coli, streptomonia, Klebsiella, initial treatment, cefotaxime, or third-generation cephalosporin. Certain cases, you may give IV albumin uh, to help prevent less renal impairment, and it has been associated with lower mortality. When should we suspect SBP in a patient? Um, with cirrhosis, if they have fever, unexplained leukocytosis, unexplained renal failure, hepatic encephalopathy, um, sometimes SVP can just present as confusion as the only symptom. They may just have a little bit of mild ascites and their presentation is forgetfulness or confusion. So uh, situations to consider that they could do in a potential question is patient with cirrhosis, ascites that's fairly well controlled with diuretics now comes in with confusion and they've been compliant with their uh, lactulose. So you also want to rule out infections. Okay. Just a couple more things. So Gilbert syndrome, this is where you have an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Um, sometimes a scenario could be that they have a patient who comes in with slight yellowing in their eyes after physical stress or fasting, otherwise asymptomatic. All other LFTs are normal. They state their, fam their parents may have a similar condition. It's an autosomal dominant condition, so uh, that's where we think it, may, it would be Gilbert. So something they like to test on, so kind of clinical scenario they may present like that for the boards. Hemochromatosis, it can be uh, genetic or acquired. Uh, it is associated mainly in the Caucasian population. They, have a C, they can have a gene mutation in the C282Y uh, gene. It's autosomal recessive. Uh, it will, can present with, basically it's caused by iron deposition in the liver, the heart, pancreas, pituitary gland, and it is associated with arthritis. And basically we have an abnormally increased iron absorption from the intestine. So a scenario for the boards could be that you have a 45-year-old male who presents with like abnormal LFTs, They've had some degree of heart problems. They have some associated arthritis. They may show lab patterns consistent with, an L with uh, high iron levels. And they may ask, 
you know, what do you think this is? And it could be hemochromatosis. So kind of you want to know the constellation uh, for the boards on that. Uh, patients can also have hyperpigmentation. You want to screen family members. They may ask if a patient has hemochromatosis, what are other things you would counsel on? You would screen family members. And the treatment is phlebotomy. So uh, hemochromatosis, they have hepatomegaly, hyperpigmentation, diabetes, arthropathy, and cardiac uh, issues in about 15% of the cases. Wilson's disease, an autosomal recessive disease, it's where there's an impaired excretion of copper into the bile. So what happens is excess copper gets stored in the body. Usually the presentation would be a young man who has liver as well as neurologic and possible psychological problems. They may have a personality change. They can have hemolysis on their, liver, on their panel. And uh, they may say that on eye exam, they're seeing these uh, Kaiser Fleischer rings. So that's what this is right here on this eye picture. The diagnosis is made by checking a urine copper. Your ceruloplasm levels are very low. Liver biopsy can also be done. So for the boards, they may put a, a case scenario of a young female or a young male, abnormal LFTs, personality change, and they may show a picture of their eyes, and they want you to think Wilson's disease. Treatment is chelation therapy. Now, a couple things that they can ask about liver disease during pregnancy. So in the first trimester of pregnancy, um, patients can get hyperemesis gravidarum. They can present with mild AST, ALT elevation, severe nausea and vomiting. Uh, they can get acute viral hepatitis. Viral hepatitis E can be very severe and fulminant, not as common in the United States. The other thing that's very common in the first trimester of pregnancy is gallstones. So we talked a lot about gallstones in the presentation. They would have that abnormal ultrasound. Um, at that time, you would probably expectantly manage them and you plan for surgery in the second trimester if they need it. In the second trimester, once again, gallstones and viral hepatitis are possibilities. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy can occur. They present with itching, uh, increased ALT, AST, ALKFOS, and bilirubin. And in the third trimester of pregnancy, uh, patients can present with fatty liver pregnancy, HELP syndrome, or preeclampsia. And the treatment for all three of those is emergent delivery. So for your boards, they're going to ask patient the third trimester of pregnancy. They may have preeclampsia, the low platelets, the hemolytic anemia. They could ask, what do you do next or what do you recommend? Emergent delivery. Um, there is fatty liver pregnancy. Um, this is a microvesicular fat deposition versus like with alcohol, it's um, macrovesicular, occurs in the third trimester, uh, presents very nonspecifically abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Uh, you get a, some elevation in your AST, ALT. Once again, the treatment is prompt delivery. Now, last thing is when to refer for liver transplant in a patient who has liver disease. 
So consider it in anyone who has end-stage chronic liver disease. So for chronic PBC, PSC, autoimmune hepatitis, chronic, uh, those chronic diseases, you would refer for anyone who has HCC who meets the Milan criteria. Um, anyone who has HCV-induced cirrhosis that's not responding to therapies. Um, as we know, we use the MELD to decide, uh, and it's a scoring system that includes bilirubin, INR, and creatinine um, that helps us assess where on the list they would be. Okay, I think this is the last question. What is the most common cause of acute liver failure in the United States? A, drug hepatotoxicity, B, Wilson's disease, C, hepatitis B virus, or D, amanita mushrooms? Okay, A, drug hepatotoxicity, um, yes. And which drug is the most common to cause acute liver failure? Acetaminophen, correct. So drug hepatotoxicity is very common. Acetaminophen we talked about. Alcohol increases the risk. Um, believe it or not, those who have suicide attempts and have drug hepatotoxicity or acute liver failure have actually better prognosis. Um, and so just for your boards, you need to know the number one cause of acute liver failure is drug hepatotoxicity. Of those drugs, acetaminophen. Of that, you want to know when to refer for, to a transplant center and that you use N-acetylcysteine as the treatment. So I want to thank everyone for their attention.